Welcome to the podcast. Continuity today, hosted by Todd DeVoe, where planning meets reality. Good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you're at. And I am Todd DeVoe, and I've been involved in responding to emergencies and disasters well since 1989, a long time ago. And now I'm an educator and I teach in the sec- post secondary level. And one of the things I love to do is I love to learn and I love to share. Uh, what I've been learning. And it's a passion for me. So like I said, welcome to Business Continuity today where we will be continuing to learn together. So what are we talking about today? You know, today we're just talking about managing how to manage up and how to engage with executives before a crisis. And it's one of the things that I've, I've learned over the time that sometimes your executives come in um, and they don't want to train. So we're going to get into that today. And this is inspired by Eric McNulty in his current piece in the Crisis Response Journal uh, talking about C-suites, a wild card when crisis strikes, and lays out a compelling story on how executives react and how they make decisions in a crisis. Or in some cases, they do not, rock, they do not react properly and they make bad decisions. So when we get into the why, and, and you know that's my favorite question, the why question. It really dives deeper into like of what really makes the executive member of the team the wild card. And it becomes evident that this problem crosses disciplines from public to, to private sector. You know, and it's interesting to see that happening because there are some really great examples of bad decisions from CEOs over the years. The one I, that really pops into my mind is is the BP oil spill and when the CEO, Tom Hayward, says, we're sorry for the massive disruption it's caused in their lives. And there's no one who wants to get packed, who wants this over more than I do. Right? He says, I just want to get back to my life. That oil spill disaster claimed 11 lives and has since spewed 20 to 100 million gallons of toxic oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Very disconnected to what really people want from the leader at this particular time during a crisis. McNulty argues that leaders require effective communication and it's never more important than in a crisis. And people want to know that the top executives get, uh, grasp what the problem is. You know, and, and the example of a BP shows that they're not really seeing what the total problem is, nor do they care, um, or, or, or nor did he care how it affected them, right, the people. And, that's, and, you know, we're doing something about it. What is going on? What is the leadership saying? And there's four areas that we have to look at. Trustworthiness, timeliness, transparency, and tenacity. So why is there a disconnect at the top? And one of the most common causes that I hear is that executives are too busy to attend exercises and drills. And we hear this from all the time, whether it's from small organization to a large organization. And this might be true. However, if you think about 9-11, Rick Roscola was the director of financial services, of security for financial services for 
uh, Morgan Stanley at the World Trade Center. And he decided he is credited for saving around 2,300 people's lives because he did not take no for an answer. Tenacity. Rick lost his life on September 11th, ensuring that every last person was out of the building. The thing was with Rick, it didn't start all right, on 9-11. That wasn't the day that people started going, oh, here he comes to tell us what to do. Right? It started before. Now, i got to tell you a story about it. We had this at the old Stitch Radio Studios a few months ago. And there was a fire alarm going off. And I left the office to go see what was going on. And and one of the girls from the shared space, she said, "Oh, I'm gonna, you know, that I'm gonna close the door because it was really loud out there in the hallway, right?" And I asked her, "Well, what if it was a real fire?" And a few seconds later, the office manager came in and told everybody there was a fire on the third floor and that we had to evacuate the building. If you remember, this was actually on a Thursday when I do our other show, Ian Weekly, and we we did a live from outside, right? But the thing is with this is we're in a world of distractions. We're in a world where the phone tells us what to do and what to do and where to go. Let's talk about Rick again really quick. Tenacity is that word that comes to mind. You know, he was a man that did not take no for an answer. When he was 16, he joined the British Army. And then after his time in the service, he became a police officer in the Northern Rhodesia Police Department. And that time was a pretty bad area in the middle of a civil war and things like this. And then in 1963, he moved to the United States to join the Army, the United States Army, when he went to Vietnam and he became an officer and he was highly decorated. Rick was the guy that everyone dreaded to come into the office, right? And it wasn't because they didn't like him. It was they knew that he was going to be on top of them, checking to make sure that the fire wardens and the floor captains were doing their job. And he would hold fire drills and build an evacuation drills. You know, even to the point to where he would go in and hang up the phone as the president of the, of the uh, company was on the phone call saying, hey, you got to go out too. There was no level saying I couldn't participate. See, and this was the dedication from the C-suite as well to participate in that program. The president of the company participated, and that saved thousands of people's lives on that day in September. The only two people to pass um, from Morgan Stanley was the president of the company, and Rick. Now, I understand that not everyone is working in business continuity and emergency management is a war hero, and that maybe that has the ability to lead like Rick does. However, it takes a deeper look at the four areas that McNulty highlighted in his piece. Trustworthiness, timeless, transparency, and tenacity. See, trustworthiness starts with communication. And I know we're back on that subject. However, there has to be a reason that it's part of every after-action report. You know, in fact, it's in the top three, right? If it's not number one, it's definitely going to be number in the top th- number three, right? So with proper open communications, the members of the organization will know that they're part of the solution, that they have been an understanding of what's going on at the top. Communication opens transparency as well. But poor communication leads to confusion, and it erodes the confidence of the team and the stakeholders, and in the case of government officials, you know, the members of the community. Now, let's talk about what happened at the aftermath of Katrina and how, well, Blanco and Negan lost their positions. They just got voted out. You know, disasters and crises bring the best out of people, and sometimes it brings the worst out of people. But the communication is as transparent with information as you can be at times. Lawyers are trying to protect an organization can actually make things worse at times. You know, 
we should never work to hide things, right? We should always be as transparent as possible. And yes, there are things that we can't be shared, but make sure that the executives have all the information that they need to know to make the decision that allows them to see what they can trust and what they can, they can send out. They need to trust you as a crisis leader. Tenacity is that stick to and never quit. Think about Jocko Willink and extreme ownership. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> um, one of the concepts that I learned uh, from one of my chiefs is that you can delegate authority, but you cannot delegate responsibility. And this is how you have to get to the top executives to pay attention to their preparedness. Eric McNulty talking to business continuity professionals about how to get top executives to pay attention to preparedness. You know, he goes into a few details here with, with each of them in that piece. It's really important to read it. But he advises these professionals to start the conversation about decision-making. Executive pride themselves in their ability to make decisions and allows them to demonstrate their expertise and authority. You know, it's really important. It's almost like, I don't know, stroke an ego, if you will. But invite them to, to help them to help you understand where the questions are, like, like above it. Sit on their agenda. Get, get on their agenda. Make sure that you're always in contact with them and build that relationship. He states this will often lead to discussions of what executives will need to know in order to make decisions and make invaluable insight into their crisis leader and to anticipate information and needs. To, and and also, it also lets them avert micromanagement. It ensures that the senior executive, that they, are, they have an important role to play. You know, and that's the thing too, is you don't want to ice them out. You want to make sure that they have an important role to play as well and that the decision-making process is done prior to a crisis happening. See, everything above is dependent on the productivity and trust-based relationship and between the crisis to team leader and the senior most executives that they report to. In fact, the life of the CEO worries about share prices and, 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 and political officials are concerned about polls. These reflect the sentiments of the people to whom that they are accountable to. And work. so you need to work with your boss to know his or her style and their needs. What information do they want? How often do they want it? And what form? What core principles do they expect you to follow? You need to understand the pressures that they are facing as well as the pressures from outside internally, and also they're responsible for everybody in their organization. See, this helps you build a predictive relationship. And in today's turbulent world, every leader in every organization needs to anticipate confronting a crisis. It's not a matter of if something will happen. It's going to be a matter of when it occurs. You know, it's a skill that's really taught in school, but it's important to leave, uh, it's important to leave to chance. You know, you really need to take a look at this and be proactive of what's going on. And to be an effective leader and leading up, crisis professionals can avert chaos erupting at the top. It's kind of what our job is to do, realistically. So the chief, as the chief arriving at the scene, can be welcome after all because, you know, they are needed and they are going to give you support and also hopefully you know, <laughs> the finances and, and the political clout to do their job. So everybody, I want to thank you for being with us today. You know, visit Titan HST for all your communication needs. And remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and uh, join us next week. Oh, yeah, also, can you please go in there and give us a nice rating? Five stars if you like what we're doing. And uh, I really appreciate your support 
and being here with us each week. So until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A good Tuesday to you. It's time once again for RFD Illinois. I'm Delos Yonke. I'm Rita Frazier, and you were adding the rain totals... From the last several days. Man, need uh, need more than just a few fingers. Right. Need fingers and toes in, in some of these cases. Mm-hmm. And I remember some folks along I-80, I feel like it was on Thursday, they had five inches. Like Stark County and Bureau County and around there. And some places had seven and some places had eight. And, and Wabash County had zip. Zip. Missed it all. Missed it all. I would also look at, like, National Weather Service at Lincoln, yesterday around noon, they updated they had 96-hour precip. And you start making your way south, for example, and if they didn't miss all of it, then maybe if there were some places got 1,200s. I think Alney got 400s, you know. If you were on 50 or south, a lot of those places missed it. So that's a lot of have and have-nots there. Absolutely. We'll hear a couple of minutes from Ivan Dozier here coming up as he talks about when we get downpours, such as we did over the last few few days, then that's when you can really tell if you're doing things right or if you're not, those trouble spots show up a little bit quicker. Yeah, that's true. They would identify themselves pretty quickly. Huh. We'll also have latest numbers and already anticipating now it's finally tomorrow, prospective plantings and quarterly grain stocks numbers. We'll talk about all those things coming up on RFD Illinois. With this week's edition of Farm Week, the early word, here's Delos Yonke. Will the June 30 acreage and stocks reports ignite fireworks ahead of the 4th of July weekend? General feeling in the trade is that we'll see an increase in corn and soybean acres. The question is, how much? An analyst shares his thoughts in this week's Farm Week. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Rock Island District has received its second, third, and fourth highest budgets on record. Where's the money going? Don't miss a project update in this week's Farm Week. The number one ag publication in Illinois. Arriving soon in your mailbox. No other farm weekly in Illinois has as many people on the ground in Illinois covering Illinois agriculture for you with the depth on key issues to help keep you profitable. And don't forget, you can get daily or even more frequent updates online anytime at farmweeknow.com. Back on RFD Illinois, I'm Rita Frazier. It's back to the political arena, according to a longtime ethanol backer, after the Supreme Court overturned a lower court ruling that limited EPA extensions of biofuel waivers. RFD Washington correspondent 
Matt Kay reports. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley says the 6-3 Supreme Court ruling that the EPA can grant small oil refiners extensions of expired ethanol waivers means the long-running industry battle continues. Now we're back to relying on the political branches of government. We find ourselves in the same position we were in prior to the Tenth Circuit opinion. The Biofuels Coalition called on the bureaucracy at EPA to respect those parts of the lower court ruling the Supreme Court didn't rule on, that refiners must show and prove financial hardship before qualifying for a waiver. Renewable Fuels Association's Jeff Cooper. So the political wrangling will continue. But I do, however, want to make sure it is understood that EPA does still have these other um, restraints, these other handcuffs from the Tenth Circuit decision that they that they must uh, reconcile, that they must deal with. Grassley, meantime, warns a legislative fix to the renewable fuel standard could open a Pandora's box for ethanol. For the ethanol industry, we could be hurt by it. So I would need some assurance that we're in a strong position in order to do legislation to continue RFS as we've had it or even improving it. The RFS, by statute and contrary to rumor, continues beyond 2022, though the EPA administrator, working with the Energy and USDA secretaries, must set new annual volume targets. Congress set the original targets only through next year. For the RFD Radio Network, Matt K. Washington. Thanks, Matt. Well, at this time of year, it's water. Did you get rain? Did you get too much rain this past weekend with the downpours and isolated flooding? It certainly makes a person think about drainage and the land. Ivan Dozier, state conservationist. And I got around this weekend a little bit just intentionally to to drive around and look at how the water patterns are going. And there are some noticeable differences. Individual fields that have um, the the reduced tillage and, and all also uh, cover crops. It, it really does make a difference with the infiltration and, and the resilience of the soil. Right now we're just we're inundated. Uh, there's just so many places that there's nothing you can do about it when you get 10 inches of uh, rain uh, you know in a 24-hour period. And, and then as I look out west and they're under a severe drought fire watch and it just reminds you how fragile our agriculture systems can be. And it's always been that way. We've always been so weathered. Uh, dependent and it's just one of those things that we can't control in agriculture. So when we have some opportunities to do some things to make a difference, it really emphasizes that it, it's time to start attention, helping build uh, those resilient soils. We talk about soil and water conservation districts and the work that they've been doing for 50 and, and 75 years around the state kind of leads us to the next conversation of here in the last couple of weeks seeing that Illinois budget that can contained really some much-needed additional funding for soil and water conservation districts around the state. People tend to forget that those soil and water conservation district boards, they're comprised of uh, volunteer uh, farmers who, who uh, are, are volunteering their time to come in and, and meet on a, on a regular uh, basis to talk about conservation needs in a local area. And I can tell you, when I was a district conservationist, that's how I worked. That's how I got all of my information about what we needed to do to, to feed that information on up to help uh, develop our programs. 
as a state conservationist, I still do that. I still rely on those uh, local soil and water conservation district boards. Now they have staff. A lot of people don't realize in RCS we don't have administrative staff at the local level. We rely on the soil and water conservation districts. When you've got government programs, whether they're cost share programs or whatever, you know, there's paperwork that goes along with it. And, and that administrative support and now as we see the technical support, it's a big job and uh, we need all hands on deck. And to see some of those dollars uh, come through and get back to even where they used to be is a really big step forward. I, we've still got a big job to do, but this is a, this is a positive step forward. Ivan Dozier, state conservationist. DeLoss is back with more from the field after this. You are made for this season. You were born for the field. The National Corn Growers Association is an official partner of MLB at Field of Dreams game, presented by GEICO. Join the Illinois Corn Growers Association by July 8th, 2021, and you'll be entered into a random drawing to win two tickets to see the MLB's Field of Dreams game between the New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox on August 12th, 2021 in Dyersville, Iowa. Visit ncga.com for Born for the Field contest rules. No purchase necessary to enter or win. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. When it comes to our members, Chris Magnuson connects rural routes for you. Chris leads Illinois Farm Bureau's efforts to provide valuable information to our members. He has spent two decades with IFB. Here's a bit about his rural roots. I grew up on a farm with corn, soybeans, and Christmas trees. I've been in ag communication for three decades now. My greatest satisfaction has always remained the same, to serve our members. Be it routes or roots, RFD Radio, FarmWeekNow.com, and FarmWeek keep you connected. Welcome back to RFD Illinois. I'm DeLos Yonke. The latest report from Ag Statistics, crop progress and condition ratings had quite the statistics across the state. An average temperature of 71 degrees was 2.9 degrees cooler than normal. All nine of the reporting districts came in cooler than average. And rainfall was all over the place. 3,800s in the southeast, 8,500s in the southwest. Two and a half in the northwest, three and a third in the northeast, a little more than three in the west, 3.7 in the central, eastern Illinois, a little more than four inches of rainfall. Statewide average of 274, two and three quarter inches, an inch 84 more than normal. In fact, southern Illinois, again, getting the least of the rain, second week in a row. Kevin Rabers, farm wheat crop watcher in Wabash County, now that weed harvest is complete. Wouldn't mind a good old soaker. This may have been the best wheat crop I've ever harvested in my life. It, it was uh, quality was good, test weight was good, yields were excellent. I mean, uh, the wheat got off to a good start last fall and just didn't get uh, any bad bad weather to hurt it and stuff. And I, from what I've heard, everybody had just had really excellent wheat. And when did you get that harvested? I finished up last week, last Thursday. See that we were uh, I was really trying to get done with the wheat and double crops because our forecast was rain over the weekend and uh, it just didn't materialize. We just had in my area, I think just probably go 15 miles north of us, I think they've had some showers that we just didn't get anything right here. So So did you double crop beans and how did that process go? Yes, we were running right behind a combine trying to get the double crops planted because we thought it was going to rain. And most fields, 
had some moisture. We had one field that was really dry. They're probably not going to come on their own. It's going to have to have a shower. But the others may, uh, we may get a good stand there without having uh, a rain on them yet. But a, a rain would definitely help. Kevin Raber in Wabash County visited with Rita yesterday. You can find his and the other Farm Week Crop Watcher reports in this week's edition of Farm Week. One of the Farm Week Crop Watchers, by the way, is Brent Clare in Adams County. He's also a trained meteorologist. We had him on RFD Profit Watch talking weather. He's pretty well pleased that precipitation amounts over these last few days. Unfortunately, the rest of the state had it come down in buckets, and we came. It's nice and easy drizzle or to a little bit moderate, but it wasn't the uh, the heavy downpours that other parts of the state have uh, received. So, pretty lucky on that end. It uh, was a nice soaking. Anywhere from I've heard two to four is the average, two to four inches is the average. But then I've heard some saying they weren't getting much at all. So, it's kind of puzzling. You know, it's it's. Uh, uh, I heard some guys say maybe four tenths, and um, oh my. but I say I say that for the most part it's been that you know in that two to four range. We here at the north part of the county got right at two, and uh, like I said, just nice soaked in. Terraces never got high or anything like that, so a really good, really good rain for us. Brent Clare in Adams County, also a farm wheat crop watcher, was a guest yesterday on RFD Profit Watch. Looking at some of the numbers from Ag Statistics, the Illinois corn crop is now rated. 68% good to excellent, four percentage points better than the week before. Soybeans, 67% is one percentage point better than the week before. National number, 64% is one percentage point less. And analysts were expecting an improvement to the corn crop rating. The soybean condition rating is 60% good to excellent, which is the same as a week ago. Perhaps the most noteworthy crop is spring wheat, where just 20% is rated either good or excellent. 39% of the crop is rated either poor or very poor, the 15th worst on record. It's only been eight weeks since records began in 1986, where the good to excellent portion was smaller. All of those took place in the drought year of 1988. Washington, for example, only 7% of its crop is rated either good or excellent. South Dakota, only 10% is rated either good or excellent. A lot of hot, dry conditions. Meanwhile, the spring wheat price is more than $8 a bushel because of expectations for an awfully poor crop year. Kent Casson's a farmer and farm broadcaster in McLean and Livingston counties. Hard to believe it was a few weeks ago we were hoping for a shower across our farms, and now we hope the rains ease up as excess moisture is taking its toll on some corn and soybean fields. Rain has totaled six inches on my farm near Fairbury since last Thursday. We have missed out on the extreme rainfall as locations south and northeast of here receive quite a bit more than that. There was even a report of a tornado in eastern Livingston County near Chatsworth over the weekend. We still have a couple of fields to finish the nitrogen application on, but we have to wait until conditions are dry enough to get out there. Fungicide will be the next big thing to consider on the farm as corn continues to rapidly develop and soybeans won't be too far off. We'll see if all these soybean chemical technologies hold this summer for weed control. I have a feeling after all this rain, some weeds will escape through the soybeans. Reporting from southeast Livingston County for the RFD Radio Network, I'm Kent Cassett. Meanwhile, many will be watching what's going on in South America. A Reuters article from Sao Paulo yesterday suggested a strong polar air mass 
going through south and southeast areas in Brazil could have an impact on corn crop. Not as much risk for sugarcane and coffee, but concerns about corn, especially in a year like this. Many fields were planted later than usual because of delays on soybeans ahead of them. Crop is still in a stage in which cold weather could be particularly harmful. The Brazilian safrina crop has already lost potential yield due to a long dry spell this year. So if there is frost, it could make things even more difficult. Forecasts of frost happening today through Thursday in most regions of Paraná, the second largest grain producer in Brazil, also parts of Mato Grosso do Sul and the southern part of Sao Paulo, very key ag regions in Brazil. Well, what's it going to do weather-wise here? We'll break now for both markets and weather. With the RFD Ag Market Summary for this Tuesday morning, I'm Jim Taylor. Corn and beans double-digit higher, wheat ending Monday higher. July corn closing at 675 and a half, up 39. September corn up 28, 558 and a quarter. And December corn up 28, 547 and a quarter. July beans closing at 1357, up 27 and a quarter. August beans up 34, 1336 and three quarters. November beans 1312 and a half, up 42 and three quarters. July wheat closing at 646, up nine. September wheat up 10 and three quarters 651 and a half December wheat 658 and three quarters up 10 and three quarters July bean meal 351.60 up 440 July bean oil 62.31 up 260 and current electronic overnight trading July corn down two and a half September corn down four and a half and December corn down four and a half 542 and three quarters July beans in the overnight down three and a half August beans down five and a quarter and November beans down nine and three quarters 1302 and three quarters July wheat in the overnight down five Five and a half. September wheat down four and a half, and December wheat six fifty four and three quarters down four. In the outside markets: September Brent crude oil seventy four fourteen. That's down one twenty four. The August gold contract down ten forty this morning seventeen seventy thirty. In the livestock market from Monday, June live cattle one twenty two ten down seventy two cents. August live cattle down one twenty one twenty one sixty. August feeder cattle one fifty six thirty five down three twenty. September feeders down two seventy. 159.07. July lean hogs 104.95 up $3. August lean hogs up $3. 102.77. October lean hogs up $3.87.40. Illinois direct barrels and gilts trading week on Monday at 76 to 85. That's the RFD Ag Market Summary for this Tuesday morning. I'm Jim Taylor for the RFD Radio Network. Good morning, this is Dan Hicks from Freeze Notice Weather with the early morning ag weather update on the RFD radio network for this Tuesday morning. Areas of scattered showers and thunderstorms continued across the Midwest the past 24 hours, although not all locations had rainfall. Greatest coverage of rain here in Illinois generally occurred in some west central through northern counties, with some quarter to one inch rain amounts reported, along with some lighter and a few isolated heavier. Farther to the south and southeast in the state, rainfall the past 24 hours was more spotty. Daytime highs yesterday were in the upper 70s and 80s north to 80s and low 90s south. Early morning temperatures are mostly in the mid-60s to mid-70s. Some additional showers and thunderstorms will continue across Illinois the next 24 to 36 hours. By Thursday, best chances for rain will be mostly in the southern Midwest. And then a drier trend is expected across most of the Midwest 
Friday through the 4th of July weekend as this rain area moves more into the southern part of the nation. Additional rainfall before the rain chances diminish will be generally in the quarter to one inch range across the northern part of the state and half to inch and a half in the central and southern counties. This drier weather pattern will likely continue into a portion of the 6 to 10 day time frame. 6 to 10 day rainfall amounts should average near to below normal in the northern half of Illinois and near to a little bit above normal in the south. Most daytime highs across the region through the end of the week will be in the upper 70s, 80s, and low 90s. No extreme temperatures are seen right through the 6 to 10 day time frame with 6 to 10 day readings averaging fairly close to normal. Right now, it looks like the, for the 11 to 15 day period, greatest rainfall amounts will tend to favor the southern and eastern Midwest with lighter amounts farther west. 11 to 15 day temperatures should be near to slightly above normal. I'm Dan Hicks from Freeze Notice Weather. Are you an Illinois Farm Bureau member with livestock on the farm? FarmGate is a free and confidential program that can educate you about the environmental regulatory requirements that exist here in our state. We can connect you with resources like guidebooks, updated checklists, and industry experts to provide you with the answers you need for your farm. To learn more, call your local county Farm Bureau or visit ilfb.org slash FarmGate. Warmer weather means a longer honeydew list. Your county Farm Bureau can help you stay on top of your project list and save you money along the way. A Farm Bureau membership offer includes discounts on equipment and supplies from Granger, plus free shipping on all standard Granger products. Browse thousands of items from landscaping equipment to power tools. Anything you need to get the job done, Granger has it. Not a Farm Bureau member? Call us at 309 557 2689. Or visit Illinois Farm Bureau online and join today. RFD Radio Network's Rita Frazier connects rural routes for you. Rita delivers passion and reliable information to listeners on the RFD Radio Network. Her radio career spans close to three decades. Here's a bit about her rural roots. I grew up on a small farm. My job today allows me to connect with people from all walks of life and experience opportunity every day. I get to talk about what I love, farming. Be it routes or roots, RFD Radio, FarmWeekNow.com, and FarmWeek keep you connected. Have your eyes on a new Ford truck? Your County Farm Bureau membership can help you get that shiny new truck in your driveway. Farm Bureau members get exclusive $500 bonus cash on a new Ford Ranger F-150 or Super Duty. You can't afford not to be a Farm Bureau member. That's right, Farm Bureau members get exclusive $500 bonus cash. Join now at ILFB.org or visit your County Farm Bureau for more details. That's all the time we have for RFD Illinois. Can we salute an individual on this show? Sure. Dave Fisher, retired dairy extension specialist, recently received the Holstein Association USA's 2021 Distinguished Leadership Award. Wow. That's something you don't just hand out to anybody, is it? No. A lot of years of service. A lot of years. Selfless. Yeah. Ups service. And ups and downs. and Yes. Wow. So he currently lives in the Edwardsville area. We'll say hello. We'll say hello and salute and certainly commendation on a job well done. That's very nice. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'm DeLos Yonke. I'm Rita Frazier for Jim Taylor.
Thank you for joining us here on the RFB Radio Network. Hey, you know, a great way to reach farmers, reach those in agriculture, is through local radio. In fact, Rita, from the National Association of Farm Broadcasting, they have research that shows that farmers listen 87% say they listen three-plus days a week. 74% say they listen four-plus days per week. We're proud to be able to provide a service for stations all over the state that touch farmers at a very direct level. Indeed, and local radio is still the best way to stay connected to your local community. Be sure to listen to this station throughout the week, not just for RFD Illinois, but for also market updates, news information, weather, and much more coming from the network and from Illinois Farm Bureau. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Welcome to Talk Line on the Metro News Radio Network. Do not attempt to change the station. You are surrounded. We interrupt this program to bring you an emergency news Smoke. From the studios of the West Virginia Radio Corporation and the Metro News Radio Network, the voice of West Virginia, comes the most powerful radio show in West Virginia. This, this is Metro News Talk Live with Hoppy Kerchival. Check set line up link. Activated Telos Telephone. Switch network control from Charleston to Morgantown. Stand by. Q Hoppy. You're on. Metro News Talk Line with Hoppy Kerchival is brought to you by Encoga Insurance. Encircling you with coverage to protect what you care about most. Visit Encoga.com to learn more. Good morning. Daniel Woods is our producer. Taylor Kennedy with the video stream. You can watch at WVMetroNews.com. The phone number is 1-800-765-8255. 1-800-765-TALK. Text me 304-TALK-304. Email me. Talkline at WVMetroNews.com. So there's this infrastructure framework. There's not yet a bill. This is the framework that was worked out involving uh, President Biden, five Democrats, five Republicans. One of those Democrats is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who joins us via Skype from his office in Washington, D.C. Senator, good morning. How are you, sir? Really, really good, Hoppy. But I'm in, I'm in Charleston, thank you. Oh, you're in Charleston? Home. Oh, okay. Yeah, All, right. All right, well, good. That's okay. That's good. Good All to right. be home. Well, it's good to have you uh, on with us this morning. Okay, so uh, let's start with the basics. This framework of a bill, which is largely a traditional infrastructure bill, there's about 570, 580 million a billion dollars in new spending, a total of 1.2 billion. The president had a couple different positions on that. We'll sure. get to that. But as this bill stands today, or as this framework stands today, this is something that you will support and try to get uh, any reluctant Democrats or Republicans to also support. And if so, why? Well, it's the largest infrastructure bill we've ever had in the United States of America. And I think it's worth everyone supporting and looking at it, see how much good it does. You know, for the first time, we have a chance truly to uh, connect uh, rural America, rural West Virginia with Internet service, computer service. And that's something special. We have a chance to finish quarter H. We have a chance to invest big in King Cole Highway and Coalfields Expressway. And they're finishing 35 now. We see how long that's taken. This can really jumpstart us in West Virginia and give us a chance. Hoppy, you got to give credit where credit's due. 
really Tom Carper and Shelley Moore Capito, basically in their committee, which is EPW, Environmental Public Works, uh, basically came out with a template. And Shelley worked on that with other Republicans. That basically is what we used as our template and built off of it. So there's an awful lot of people have done a lot of good work on this. And it really, really does cover an awful lot of good. Senator, I guess this is an inside the Beltway question, but uh, why was the committee that you were on working on an alternative plan while Capito was negotiating with the president? Didn't that kind of undermine what Capito was trying to do? Well, no, no. No, Shelley basically was was doing it basically on from the Republican standpoint. She was di- dealing directly, which I thought was very good. Uh, the president basically entertained that. She had six other Republican chairmen of or we call uh, ranking members uh, from the Republican Party. They had gotten as far as they could go with, I guess, the blessings of, of working with their caucus of where they felt the caucus wanted to go. We started working when that came apart, and we'd been following what they'd been doing, but working after that, you know, did not go any further. And the president wanted to reach out in a bipartisan way, and we took that template and worked with it. So I give them a tremendous amount of credit. I don't think we'd be talking about it today they hadn't done the work they did. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin is with us via Skype from uh, his office in uh, Charleston. Senator, I read this morning, because few details are out on, on the pay for here for this $1.2 trillion over eight years. And, and candidly, it looks like a lot of weird math. I mean, it looks like, well, there's some money that could come in from here and maybe some money from over here. And there's going to be some economic growth associated with this. So there'll be from money there. I mean, is there some funny math in, in this pay for, in your opinion? Well, not really. Dynamic. Okay, you're talking about dynamic Dynamic scoring. scoring. Dynamic scoring is based on this. Uh, If you do, uh, and for every amount of money you spend in infrastructure, infrastructure is the the easiest thing for us to gauge on what dynamic growth will come from it. And they call uh, 3x, 4x, 5x, okay? I've seen everything from 4x to 5x and even 6. That means six times for every dollar. So if you spend 40 billion, or you spend whatever, or spend 500, how much return should you get on that? How much growth is there going to be? So you build that into it. That'll score, because that's real. Then the other thing, there was one in there, that basically uh, from IRS, we call tax gap, money that's not being collected. We know IRS has been eviscerated over the years. Both parties are responsible for not funding the IRS better than they have. So the president recommended 80 billion, we put 40 billion. Again, the, they, I think they put $63 billion that we should get from that. We think that's extremely low, but that's the number we had to work on. We think it's going to be three, four, or $500 billion for that, 400 that we, uh, 40 that we invest. So, so let me go to the, the track for this bill because sure. uh, initially it was when the president came out and said, okay, this is going to be this bill, this is a bipartisan bill. And then yeah. later he said, no, actually, I'm not going to sign this bill unless there's a, an attached bill uh, that has all the Green New Deal stuff in there, the human infrastructure. They have to happen simultaneously. Then it come back to, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm going to do it separately. But then you have Schumer and Pelosi out there uh, still pushing for the Green New Deal stuff and for the human infrastructure stuff. So my question to you is, Uh, As U.S. Senator, do you believe that these two proposals should be linked? Should they be linked? Should one depend on the other? Or should you uh, commit to passing the traditional infrastructure bill and then worry about this other proposal later? Well, I definitely do not think they should be linked. I think that we separated in the way they should be separated. And the president has approached that in the proper manner and the right manner. 
Uh, it was a mistake what he had said, and, and then they had to walk that back. People make mistakes. But I knew from the minute that we spoke the first time with him, and many times up until the end that we spoke on that Thursday afternoon when he endorsed it, we were all on the same page. There was no doubt in my mind that he wasn't excited about it, that he was basically going to sign this bill. He wanted this bill to pass. And you see him now going out on the trail, many other people. There's nothing like this that we've ever done. For my friends in, in the far left who think that the, new, great, uh, the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal basically is aspirational from their point of view, which eliminates all fossil fuel by 2035 to get to zero net emissions. You can't do it. And that does not fix the problems that we have with climate change. Climate change is real, and you better do it through technology, through innovation, not elimination. So we're not going down that path. They know that. The votes aren't there for that. So what we're going to do is we separate it. So, Hoppy, you know, the other is this. The second bill they're talking about, they call it human infrastructure. Let's call it for what it is. It's social adjustment, social reforms. That's what they want. And we need to have some of that. You know, child care, how do we help people, working families, really be able to maximize? And child care is one of the greatest challenges that we have. And these types of things that we're working with and trying to find a pathway forward, we can do that, needed to be done. But I'm only going to be looking at basically if we make tax adjustments. Now, all of my Republican colleagues have said we're not voting for changing one penny of the tax laws that Trump did in 2017. I didn't vote for that because I thought it was totally grossly unfair the way it was done. We thought we had a good compromise before they just doubled down on reconciliation. So that's all that's in the weeds. But they they're not going to go there. I know we're going to have to get there. But the problem we're going to have is I have my progressives way out here from six trillion down to four trillion. I might be at one trillion. You follow me? Depending. I don't want to go in any more debt. So I'm watching that very carefully. So, but you're—it sounds like—and I think you're saying in one form or another what you've said previously—is clearly you don't like a lot of the Green New Deal stuff. You like some of the human infrastructure ideas, but uh, sure. you would—you would not be on board. You would not support being the 50th vote for reconciliation for something that's above how much? I mean, what's your pain threshold on reconciliation uh, of uh, of? Spending for the human infrastructure Green New Deal. Do you have you see you mentioned a trillion dollars? So do you I, don't have a pain have, threshold? I don't have I don't have a pain threshold. I have basically a pain threshold for taking on more debt. So if you can show me if you can show me a reasonable, sensible path forward that basically we don't accumulate more debt. We already have twenty eight, almost twenty eight point five trillion dollars of debt. Uh, our children and grandchildren, God help them. What we've done to them is unmerciful. And we've got to change and reverse that. So that's my pain threshold. Now, what will happen if you change the corporate net from 21% to 25%? I never thought it should have gone below 25%. We're the world leader. We have to be competitive, and that still is very competitive. Also, cap gains shouldn't be above 28%. There's so many things. There's a lot of loopholes. Carried interest. Only the one-tenth of 1% of the wealthiest people on Wall Street capitalize off of this. That's another 30 or $50 billion. So can't we close some of those? Can't we look at that and then see what we have? Do we have a trillion? I don't know. I don't know if we can get to a trillion. Is it over a trillion? I don't know until we run the numbers and make sure we certify. And then that's where I'm going to be. But uh, but clearly, you that needs to be completely separate from the traditional infrastructure, right? It should be, Hoppy. Why would anyone in the right mind hold something that can be done that's needed 
badly needed. We have the worst bridges in America and in West Virginia, the worst bridges. And we can fix our bridges. We can fix our roads. We can get internet service. We can get rail service. We can get our airports upgraded. We can do all these things. Why would people walk away from something that can be done in a bipartisan way that's truly needed because they can't get their wish list on the other? Do you believe there do you believe there are 60 Democrats and Republicans today who support uh, this uh, framework for the traditional infrastructure? I, I truly do. I really when we see it and when people look at this and see what's in it, all the good work that's been done and how it's been balanced as much as humanly possible. It's not going to be as much as the far left once. I understand that. It's definitely not going to be as little as the far right wants or doesn't want and won't, won't, won't invest into. So I know my extremes aren't going to be there, maybe. But you know what? I've seen things happen in the last five months that brought us together. We start doing things through a traditional way. And I'll tell you what we're doing now. The infrastructure part of this bill, which is the, uh, which is the uh, energy infrastructure, is about $95 billion that my committee had the first hearing before we left last Thursday. This bill is going to be worked through committees, going to go to an amendment process to the floor. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And you know what? We've passed about every bill we've had along those lines. What we have a breakdown, a breakdown about is when it doesn't go that direction and we just say, OK, given up on the Republicans, we're not going to do anything. And the Republicans have already telegraphed. Don't count on us on changing the tax code. Well, we need to change it. If you're going to pay for things, you're going to have to change it and make it more competitive and fair. So there's going to be a change there. And maybe we'll have to start out that way. But it still should be worked through committee, have, in, have Republican input, even though we know they won't, won't vote for it. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin. Senator and his uh, Charles Alvarez. Senator, good to speak with you via Skype. Thank you. We'll watch closely. Good to see hey, you. Huh? Yeah. Let me say, let me yeah. say one thing if I can. Yeah. The American Rescue Plan. Okay, we didn't have one Republican vote for the American right. Rescue right. Plan. Look at how much good it's going to do. And now people are talking about it. Okay, I understand that. But you know what? The best politics is good government. Do it right. Everybody can take credit when you do it right. All right, Senator. Good to speak with you. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. All right. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. via Skype from his Charleston office. Talk line continues. We'll we'll return to the Encova Insurance Studios right after this. Are you ready to play in a whole new way? Try the game that's as easy as one, two, three. Kino Go. Step one, go to a local retailer. Step two. Create a digital playslip with a lottery app or fill out a paper playslip. Step three, watch the keynote go drawing. Draws take place every three minutes. Watch at a retailer or watch on the go in the app. It's fast and fun with a chance to win up to $100,000. So start playing a whole new way today with the West Virginia Lottery. Please play responsibly at a distance. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to explore unique areas of the wilds? Come join us as we venture into the rarely visited areas where you can take part in an amazing experience with the whole family. During a family overnight excursion, our conservation education staff will guide you through a variety of activities and programs like canoeing and wilderness survival in areas of the wilds that aren't visited during any tours. And your family will enjoy an overnight stay in one of our education camp yurts. Have a fun adventure and learn more about this exclusive program at the Wild. Wilds.org. This is Talk Line on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. 
Hey, everybody, it's Tony Caridi. And I'm Brad Howe. And that makes two of the three guys that bring you the podcast entitled Creatively Enough. Three guys before the game. It's our opportunity to really drill down on WVU football and basketball. We break down the opponent and then review every single game. We'll give you some numbers. We'll bicker back and forth. We'll take your calls, your texts, your tweets, and get into some of your questions. And we invite you to join us each and every episode. It's three guys before the game from Metro News. Nobody covers West. West Virginia like Metro News. Start each weekday at 6.06 a.m. with the morning news. Veteran anchors Chris Lawrence and Jeff Jenkins deliver the day's biggest stories, along with in-depth reports from Alex Thomas and Jake Flatley. The morning news also brings you the latest in sports from Kyle Wiggs, Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary, and the entertainment report. Get your news from the names you know and trust on the Metro News Radio Network and at WVMetroNews.com. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brad Howe, and I invite you to check out our new podcast, The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings. Each week, I'll be joined by DraftKings experts as we dive into the NFL, college football and basketball, the NBA, and Major League Baseball with actionable information you can use. We'll look at everything, including player props, DFS plays, and the latest odds boost to help you find an edge. The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings, is available everywhere you get your podcasts and at WVMetroNews.com. Your source for what's happening in West Virginia is WVMetroNews.com. Get the latest statewide news, sports reports from WVU, Marshall, and your local high school teams. Explore the great outdoors with Chris Lawrence. Read Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary and catch up on your favorite Metro News programs and podcasts. Stay informed anytime, anywhere with WVMetroNews.com. Metro News, for 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. Metro News Talk Line with Hoppy Kerchival is brought to you by Encova Insurance. Encircling you with coverage to protect what you care about most. Visit Encova.com to learn more. Let's go to, and by the way, we're at the Encova Insurance Studios. Let's go to Brad Macklin, a Metro News statewide correspondent. And Brad, a federal judge, just yesterday we talked about the uh, challenge. Hi. Oh, hey. Just yesterday we talked about the challenge. Uh, to the new law that was about to take effect in West Virginia, I think July 7th, which would put in place uh, what some believe are overly restrictive guidelines and rules for harm reduction slash needle exchange programs. And uh, there was a legal challenge to that. And pretty quickly, uh, federal judge uh, Chuck Chambers, Robert Chambers, came back and um, and put a, and upheld the state. Said, OK, we'll, we'll put a hold on this for now. So what's going on here? And I understand with the governor's appearance here at a briefing in just a few minutes, you want to ask him about that? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in kind of the trend. Uh, this is one of a few now. And, and you got to take into account that there are hundreds of bills that pass the legislature and the governor signed, many of which really never come into public conversation. But uh, this is one of a few. This is the latest. Uh, yesterday, a federal judge granting a temporary injunction on new restrictions for harm reduction programs. Uh, prior to that, in Kanawha Circuit Court, Judge Tara Salango granted a temporary injunction on the Paycheck Protection Act. That's what people call it, but it's essentially uh, that bill would have disallowed uh, the 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 removal of of union dues from people's paychecks if they are public employees. 
So a temporary injunction on that one also. And, and also separately, the U.S. Department of Justice weighed in on a federal action on West Virginia's bill regarding transgender athletes, saying that the, the Department of Justice doesn't believe it's going to withstand legal scrutiny in the long run. So three fairly high profile bills uh, already getting nowhere in the in the court system. And what I would like to know is if if more scrutiny on on these bills would have paid off long term if uh, if the legislature had been under under more scrutiny during this very weird session that was kind of subdued because the pandemic was going on, but also if the governor and his administration had scrutinized these bills before signing off on them. Yeah, I don't know. That's tough to answer. Uh, as you know, I mean, lawyers, you're not supposed to bring a frivolous action, but lawyers can, smart lawyers can pretty much, um, you know, come up with something and uh, then lawyers clean up all details. So... Um, maybe I see what you're saying. Maybe I'm just, I'm not sure about that. Let me continue on the theme of lawyers because this is inside the beltway. If we had a beltway, I love this story though, because not that long ago, Booth Goodwin was the U S attorney for the Southern district of West Virginia. His right-hand man was Steve Ruby and together they prosecuted a number of cases, including Don Blankenship. Well, now of course there are issues with governor justice's companies and non-payment of loans or challenges about how much the governor's uh, companies owe in these loans to a couple of banks. And the two key lawyers, Booth Goodwin and Steve Ruby, are involved in this. But guess what? They're on opposite sides. What's the story? Yeah, well, this is uh, a story that, that is in the financial realm, but is also very personal between the governor and his family and their longtime banker. But now you've got this subplot with the lawyers. Uh, Booth Goodwin, of course, was U.S. attorney in southern West Virginia just a few years ago and ran for governor against Jim Justice in the Democratic primary. Justice won, uh, became governor, then switched parties. Uh, but, but Goodwin was trying to be the nominee that year and now is representing the bank that Justice is suing. And, and over here is Steve Ruby on the other side was, was, Justice's, was, was Goodwin's first chair, uh, was the, the, the go-to guy in Goodwin's office on white collar crime. And he's on the other side representing justice as, as Ruby has in a number of cases involving the governor. Right. Let's see. What else are we watching today on Metro? Oh, 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 the, um, one of the fugitives. No, no. What is it? The woman who's, who's from w, who's from West Virginia, who was uh, arrested in connection with the January 6th uprising and has a court appearance scheduled. Well, there are four West Virginians who are involved in those January 6th mob cases, and this is one of them. Uh, her name is Grayson Courtright. She was finishing up her senior year at University of Kentucky. She grew up in Hurricane in Putnam County, and, and her charges are among, the, frankly, the least serious of now over 500 people uh, charged in crimes relating to January 6th. Uh, this is Grayson Courtright, and she was accused of being where she shouldn't have been, uh, of going into the Capitol, uh, of, of disrupting things. Uh, she actually, there are pictures of her. She's wandering around holding a, a Senate members-only sign, a wooden sign, uh, and, and that is part of the charges against her. Well, there are 500 cases in the court system, so many that the jails are overcrowded. She's not in jail, 
but the jails are overcrowded. Uh, there, are, there are all kinds of hearings occupying all kinds of time in the D.C. federal court system. A lot of these trials not expected to go until 2022. And it looks like she is going to plead out. And that is appropriate for, for many of these lower level cases. Uh, hers is pretty cut and dry. So she has actually, Grayson Courtright does a plea agreement hearing uh, on July 20th. So that's coming up uh, here next month. All right, Brad McElhinney, I will excuse you so you can get to the governor's briefing starting at 1030 today, which, by the way, I'm sure there'll be some questions, too, because a Delta variant has turned up in McDowell County. So I don't want to be an alarmist, but it is noteworthy. That is the new variant that is in parts of the United States and is uh, it's a tougher variant, according to what we have read. So I'm sure there'll be questions about that today. All right. All right, Brad, thank you. Text, oh, my gosh, Hoppy, if Mooney was in with this crazy math, you would die. Um, I don't know what Mooney has to do with it, but uh, here, here's the reality about I was reading about this this morning, and it does look like the math that is going into this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill is fuzzy math. There's a lot of weird pay-fors in there. Some's going to come from here, some from there. And then I know what Joe said. I know what Senator Manchin said, but whenever anybody says, well, if you spend this much, there'll be this much in return. I go, ah, that's what you say, but I'm not sure you can actually count on that. All right, we're going to take a break and come back. When we come back, I want to talk about that um, hammer thrower, and I want to talk about the uh, commentary today, which is uh, producing, as you might expect, a lot of heat my way, and that's okay. That's all right. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Talkline on Metro News. Metro News is the voice of West Virginia. It's 10.30. Let's get a news update. Check in with the Metro News Radio Network. Find out what's happening statewide this hour all across the great state of West Virginia. West Virginia Metro News. I'm Jake Flatley. An old political foe is now representing Governor Jim Justice's longtime banker in court when the bank and justice and his family square off. Charleston lawyer Booth Goodwin, who ran against justice for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2016, is now representing Carter Bank and Trust. Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhaney. Booth and his cousin Carrie are representing Carter Bank. And then on justice's side, justice has a fleet of attorneys, but Steve Ruby is one of them. And of course, one. Uh, Businesses sued Carter Bank and many of its top executives in U.S. District Court earlier this month over millions of dollars in loans. Back in Charleston, the doctor that led the state's most populous county through the pandemic is stepping down from her current position. Kanawha Charleston Health Department Executive Director and Chief Health Officer Dr. Sherry Young announced her resignation on Monday for what she called another opportunity. Young is expected to stay in the position until the Kanawha Charleston Board of Health can find a replacement. Governor Jim Justice and his administration will address the latest coronavirus numbers and vaccination efforts at their latest briefing this hour. It's expected to get underway at moments and can be watched live at WVMetroNews.com. You're listening to Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Getting a COVID-19 vaccine is the best way to protect you and your loved ones. The vaccines have been tested. They're safe and they work. And they're available at pharmacies in many locations across West Virginia. Making the choice to get vaccinated means getting West Virginia back to regular life. Here's West Virginia University men's basketball coach, Bob Huggins. The pandemic took away the greatest home court advantage in college basketball, our Mountaineer fans. I'm Coach Huggins, and I'm tired of empty arenas, masks, 
and social distancing. That's why I got my COVID vaccine. They're safe, free, and available almost everywhere without hassle or delay. Let's work as a team, get vaccinated, and fill a Coliseum next season. I'm Coach Huggins. I got my COVID shot. Now the ball's in your hands. Get your free COVID-19 vaccine today. Find a location near you. Visit vaccinate.wv.gov. A man wanted in a 2020 hit-and-run death of a WVU student in Philadelphia is in police custody. WPVI-TV in Philadelphia reporting that 27-year-old Aaron Sims of Camden, New Jersey, was arrested Monday by the United States Marshals Service and charged in the death of Chloe Robertson. Sims had been on the run for more than a year following the accident on January 25, 2020 on the Vine Street Expressway. From the Metro News Anchor Desk, I'm Jake Flatley. Talk line on Metro News from the Encovis here in studios. What's in a number if you match just six of 25 correctly playing cash 25 from the West Virginia Lottery? You'll take home a top prize of $25,000. Drawings are held Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. It only costs a dollar to play with four drawings each week. The odds are pretty good you're going to have fun playing cash 25. There is a mysterious disease that is affecting birds in West Virginia and some of our surrounding states. I'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about a couple of things here in this segment. And you're welcome to weigh in at 800-765-8255 or text me. It's easy to get through on text. It's 304-TALK-304. Email me, talkline at wvmetronews.com. I've been thinking about this issue with uh, Gwen Berry for a couple of days now. Gwen Berry is the female hammer thrower. And during Olympic trials, uh, she came in third and there was when the anthem was played, and it wasn't played for those, it wasn't played like after every event, it was designated to be played at a certain time, and those athletes that were participating in that event were standing there. And Gwen Berry uh, did not stand respectfully for the flag and the anthem, and she has a like a protest shirt that she put over her head, and she is a um, an outspoken uh, critic of racism and what she believes are systemic racism in this country. And there's been a hue and cry about this, as you might expect. Here's my take, a couple of things. One is that this is not technically a First Amendment issue because this is not whether the government has made a law that would infringe on somebody's First Amendment rights or even that she's exercising a protected right. It just doesn't qualify as First Amendment because the government's not directly involved in this. Uh, however, it, it has, in, in this country, as I've talked about before, we do have the spirit of the First Amendment, which carries through. And it might not technically be a First Amendment issue, but in the spirit of the First Amendment, uh, we value the protection of speech, particularly unpopular speech. We value and protect an individual's right to protest in this country. So that, that pushes me in one direction in instances like this. However, However, I think that this instance in particular has a caveat, and it's this. And it's not that she shouldn't be able to protest or say what she wants to say on and on. It's that the Olympics are international competition where you are not just competing on behalf of yourself. You are representing your country. And the Olympics were organized to bring countries together in the spirit of cooperation, in the thought that if countries from all around the world 
that are different, so many different ways, and, and, and maybe or even enemies, that they, if they could compete peacefully, then that would be better for everybody. It would be better for the world. And that's the, that's the Olympic spirit. So when you, when you try out for and gain a position on the Olympic team, it isn't just about you. You are representing your country, your country. And if you find or if you believe, if you cannot bring yourself to behave respectfully when the anthem is played or when flags are presented, then that's okay, but you shouldn't be on the team. Then don't compete. Then do not compete or try out for a team that will be representative of the United States in competition with other countries. So that's why I think that what she did was inappropriate and um, disrespectful of the team that the United States is putting together to go to the Olympics. Second point on another subject is that, and I've already gotten a lot of heat about this this morning, a lot of saying, you know, you hate Trump, you're following the mainstream media, why can't you let this go, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I I saw the report. One, One of the... One of the central areas of protest by Donald Trump and by others who support him concerning the election was in Michigan. That things were fouled up in Michigan, in particular in Antrim County. And there were calls for an investigation there, for recounts. And so the legislature there appointed a committee to investigate. And this was a committee, a Republican committee with, I think it was three Republicans and one Democrat on this committee. So it was a Republican committee that conducted 28 hours of hearings, listened to testimony from 80 to 90 individuals, reviewed thousands of subpoenaed documents and evidence gathered by a Senate staff, and concluded that the results in Michigan and in Antrim County were accurate and that Biden carried, not Antrim County, Trump won Antrim County, but that Biden won Michigan. Committee Chairman Republican Edward McBroom concluded, I feel confident to assert the results of the Michigan election are accurately represented by the certified and audited results. Now, there were problems in Antrim County. Election night and the next day, there were inaccurate results that showed. It had Biden beating Trump by 3,300 votes. And that was a Republican county, so that didn't, that wasn't correct. But the numbers were wrong because votes received from polling places on election night did not transfer to their respective spreadsheet columns correctly. So there's a problem with the transfer, uh, with however the software conducted this, and uh, which had not been checked out, had not been tested previously. But the, dis- but the discrepancy, and by the way, the, once the error was, was found, the ballots were retabulated, and two days later, Two days later, the accurate results were posted showing Trump won Antrim County by 3,800 votes. And a canvas and a subsequent recount uh, confirmed the results. So Trump did win the county. But the discrepancy, particularly over the first 48 hours, was enough to set off wild theories, theories about Dominion voting machines and about how they were somehow connected to the Internet and how um, there there was falsity there from the machines, mystery ballots that showed up and ballots that switched votes from a Trump to Biden, on and on, all kinds of things were alleged. Well, this committee, this Republican committee, looked into all that. 
And the conclusion was the committee found that none of those allegations was accurate. Quote, the committee is appalled at what can only be deduced as a willful ignorance or avoidance of this proof perpetuated by some leading to such speculation. The findings uh, win no, win no uh, favor for McBroom and others who are conspiracy theorists. Um, in fact, President Donald, former President Donald Trump said uh, recently, I think might have been during his visit to Ohio, that he accused McBroom and Senate Majority Leader Republican Mike Shirky of, quote, doing everything possible to stop voter audits in order to hide the truth. But in fact, what this Republican committee did was it researched and investigated the allegations and found out the truth of what happened, not only in Antrim County, but in Michigan. Now, this is producing a lot of, and I wrote about this today, and this is producing a lot of blowback to me. You know, you're a Trump hater. You're a part of the mainstream media. Uh, you're ignoring whatever, whatever. And I, I get that. I get that. I would just ask one thing because I would, I read the report. It's not a big deal. It's 55 pages long. I didn't read the whole thing. I read major parts of it and reread parts of it. Is that in my commentary today, I link to the Michigan report. And you can go there and you can read it or just read the allegations and the findings. Just read it or read parts of it and see what you think. I guess I'm not, I guess I don't expect anybody to change their mind. I just think that, that it is important with the concerns and allegations about what happened in this election. And Michigan was certainly in the spotlight that when there, when there are these allegations and there, when there in fact is an investigation and a review, here are the findings and the findings simply do not back the argument, the contention, the conspiracy theories that Donald Trump won Michigan over Joe Biden. Facts just don't back it up. I'm sorry, but those are the findings. And you can be disappointed by that. You can be angry about that. You can blame the messenger. But these are the findings. And they're um, the... Uh, the Republicans who worked on this committee don't leave any room to suggest that maybe there was funny business that caused the election to turn out a different way. Talk line continues. We'll return to the Encovid Insurance Studios right after this. The weekend's almost here. At Lou Wendell Marine Sales, they offer a large selection of boating accessories, including life jackets, tubes, and floats everything you need for a fun and safe day on the water. See their inventory of fishing boats, pontoons, and accessories in their St. Albans store or online. The weekend's almost here. Sales.com. We furnish family fun. Do you or a loved one live in a nursing home or other long-term care facility and want to return home? You can with the Take Me Home Transition Program. The Take Me Home Transition Program provides services and supports that can help you make a safe and successful transition home. To see if you qualify, visit tmhwv.org or call 304-352-4239 and start planning your transition home today. Visit tmhwv.org for more information. 
This ad is supported by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as part of a financial assistance award beginning in 2011 and totaling over $19 million with 92.4% funded by CMS HHS and 7.6% funded by the state of West Virginia, totaling over $1.6 million. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views nor an endorsement by CMS, HHS, or the U.S. government. You're listening to TalkLine on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Metro News this morning. The biggest stories from around the state of West Virginia. When you want them. Chris Lawrence at the Anchor Desk. We are getting your day set to start in West Virginia. Jake Flatley with in-depth stories. State lawmakers approving most of Governor Jim Justice's requests last week during a special session to allocate a quarter billion dollars to certain agencies and projects. Kyle Wiggs at the Sports Desk. The longest athletic season in West Virginia high school sports history is over with all three state baseball championships decided in triple a bridgeport wins again seven straight double a logan wins single a moorfield wins a third consecutive class single a title and hoppy kerchival's daily commentary the traveling public from outside our state is finding out what those of us who live here already know west virginia state parks are a great destination anytime anywhere on any device metro news this morning listen where you get your favorite podcasts and online at wvmetronews.com Hey there, Dave Weekly here. Metro News Hotline presents what's trending in sports, music, movies, tech, television, and more from a Mountain State point of view. Renowned local and national guests pepper the daily lineup with authoritative insights and commentary on a wide variety of topics from West Virginia high school sports to the financial markets. Join the fun. Every day, Coop and I dip into irreverent discussions with calls, texts, tweets, the question of the day, and the always popular in or out. Metro News Hotline, weekdays from 3 to 6 on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Your source for news in the Mountain State is Metro News. Weekday mornings, start your day with the morning news. Three hours of the biggest stories across West Virginia, along with sports, weather, and more. Stay updated throughout the day with reports at half past each hour. And find all the info you need on your schedule at WVMetroNews.com. The news you want from the name you trust. Metro News, for 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. Metro News Talk Line with Hoppy Kerchival is brought to you by Encova Insurance. Encircling you with coverage to protect what you care about most. Visit Encova.com to learn more. All right, we'll get to the uh, back of the Encova Insurance Studios. We'll get to the bird issue here in a minute. Uh, what's, uh, would you like to get vaccinated against COVID-19 but want assistance in finding a location near you? Call the West Virginia COVID-19 Vaccine Info Line at one 833 Seven three four zero nine six five. That's one eight three three seven three four zero nine six five. All right, let me go to some text here. Stand by. Text me three zero four. Talk three zero four. Happy. Try this. Let me know how it works to start wearing a shirt that says Metro News sucks and post that on social media daily. It's exactly what the thrower is doing. The well, no, I, I don't think so. Um, again, as I said, because there is something else that goes along with that competition because you are a you are competing to be a representative 
of the country in the Olympics. I guess if you want to wear a, I mean, a Metro News shirt, I, I, don't, I don't know what, um, I mean, whatever on that. I'll be good to see. My take of the controversy, it's a boon for hammer throwing. She won't be on any stage because the team isn't good enough to appear on any stage. Hoppy, you should know by now that people that are Trump supporters don't think for themselves, so you're not going to change their mind because if he said it, then they believe it. Wouldn't matter what he said, they would believe it. So it's funny how they call other people sheep, you know, and they'll, and that those sheep will follow anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't want to call anybody sheep. I, I just, I, to me, it's over. It's been over, but. As these reports come out, then I look at them and go, okay, well, there was an issue about Michigan. And organizations, individuals raise questions about Michigan. All right, so what happened in Michigan? Well, if you read the report, it, it lays it out, it explains it, it, um, it codifies it, and there's nothing there. I mean, there, there, there are little bits and little things, and there's some shoddiness and some things that you might expect, but it's not... Nothing to back up the allegations to change the outcome. Uh, Let's see. With all the focus on the anti-American athlete, the gold and silver winners, Deanna Price and Brooke Anderson, are being completely ignored. Price actually broke her own American record on her first throw. She improved her own Olympic trial record at 77.82 meters. But on her third throw, she broke that with 79.98 meters. Uh, good for her. Might get a chance to watch it during the Olympics. Candidly, just not a big sport that we follow, right? Now we might follow it. I mean, when do you follow that? You follow that, I guess, in the Olympics. And if America has a good team, then you'll follow it during the Olympics. I'm sorry, it's just not a, it's not a, a big a, attraction sport. But what the attraction was, was how the individual acted. Hoppy Herb Brooks put it best. It's what's on the front of your jersey that matters, not the name on the back, says John. Uh, Okay. Well, Hoppy, you really went out of your way to try to make your own rule concerning the athlete. Athlete and the American flag. I bet the courts wouldn't see it your way, and I don't either. I love when people squirm and parse everything else when someone does something they don't believe in. Most of the time, I agree with you on a lot of issues, but I think you got this one messed up. Well, maybe, maybe. The, by the way, the IOC uh, has rules. The, the IOC rules were waived in this country, but the IOC has rules uh, during the Olympics where you're not allowed to engage in political speech uh, during award ceremonies or when anthems are playing. You can do them at other times, you could say things during the news conference. That's, you know, you can do it on social media. That, those are the IOC rules. Um, my point is, I defer to protecting speech, but also I think that when you are on a team representing, the, competing to represent a country, uh, that if you're not going to be respectful of that country, then why are you on the team? All right, we'll take a break and be back. Talk line continues in just a moment. 
Why should you use radio to brand your business? You can't build your business brand or tell your unique story with silent media outlets. Radio is one of the most effective ways to brand your business. When it comes to effective long-term branding, all that matters is what you say times how many times you say it. Let me say that again. When it comes to branding, all that matters is what you say times how many times you say it. Why should you use radio to brand your business? Because your current and future customers are listening. This message is brought to you by Metro News and this radio station. It seems like today everyone has an opinion on how to power America's electricity needs. Some want to see greater expansion of renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Some believe gas-fired power plants or even nuclear are the preferred method. Well, think about this. West Virginia's eight coal-fired power plants are modern electricity manufacturing facilities, providing reliable, secure, and affordable power. And they've been doing that for decades. These plants also support a strong and productive mining workforce. And when combined, the coal mining and power generation industries account for nearly 20% of our state's gross domestic product. Energy production is a critical issue. Severe weather, terrorism, and a reliable grid can certainly impact your ability to turn on the lights in your home or have power for your business. As the national debate over energy production intensifies, remember the importance and reliability of coal-fired electricity. A message from the West Virginia Coal Association. This is Talk Line on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Hey everybody, it's Tony Caridi. And I'm Brad Howe. And that makes two of the three guys that bring you the podcast entitled Creatively Enough. Three guys before the game. It's our opportunity to really drill down on WVU football and basketball. We break down the opponent and then review every single game. We'll give you some numbers. We'll bicker back and forth. We'll take your calls, your texts, your tweets, and get into some of your questions. And we invite you to join us each and every episode at Three Guys Before the Game from Metro News. Nobody covers West West Virginia like Metro News. Start each weekday at 6.06 a.m. with the morning news. Veteran anchors Chris Lawrence and Jeff Jenkins deliver the day's biggest stories, along with in-depth reports from Alex Thomas and Jake Flatley. The morning news also brings you the latest in sports from Kyle Wiggs, Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary, and the entertainment report. Get your news from the names you know and trust on the Metro News Radio Network and at WVMetroNews.com. Hi, I'm Brad Howe, and I invite you to check out our new podcast, The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings. Each week, I'll be joined by DraftKings experts as we dive into the NFL, college football and basketball, the NBA, and Major League Baseball with actionable information you can use. We'll look at everything, including player props, DFS plays, and the latest odds boost to help you find an edge. The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings, is available everywhere you get your podcasts and at WVMetroNews.com. Your source for what's happening in West Virginia is WVMetroNews.com. Get the latest statewide news, sports reports from WVU, Marshall, and your local high school teams. Explore the great outdoors with Chris Lawrence. Read Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary and catch up on your favorite Metro News programs and podcasts. Stay informed anytime, anywhere with WVMetroNews.com. Metro News, for 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. Talk line from the Encovid Insurance Studios. There is a mysterious uh, virus that's infecting birds in West Virginia and some surrounding states, Maryland, Virginia. 
uh, Washington, D.C. Jim Crum is with the DNR joins us on Metro News Talk on Jim. We got to you a little bit late. We'll try to squeeze this in. Jim, what is going on? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's a little misinformation out there. All right. Uh, as far as we know, uh, we can't uh, link this to a virus. So okay. I think that was uh, put out, and it's and it's probably not uh, not a virus at this point in time. What is it? At least, uh, well, we don't know. That's the problem. <laughs> we yeah. can't give you a good answer. That's that's uh, part of the conundrum here. So, uh, uh, how's I it actually, impacting the birds, Jim? How's it impacting birds, and which birds? Well, and uh, mainly starlings, grackles, uh, blue jays. Uh, some northern cardinals and and uh, robins uh, mm-hmm. that's been reported in other states. Ours has been cons- mainly confined to starlings and grackles in the eastern panhandle. I think we did uh, have a, a robin or two, uh, but I don't think they were suitable to be submitted. But these were large, larger mortality events, not your one bird or two birds that might uh, you might find around your house. But we are taking those calls. And uh, we are we compile those, and actually we'll look for clusters because maybe it won't uh, be as a a big significant die-off in one spot. But I understand. So Jim, far, that's the characteristics that have been in the other states that yeah. generated this. What what are, what are the symptoms in the birds? Uh, they have eye usually have eye issues. They have crusty eyes, uh, and maybe uh, show some abnormal behavior. Maybe because they're blind, uh, they they don't uh, don't fear humans a lot, or or they've run it actually have uh, unbird like behaviors that are expected of, uh, by people. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I I uh, lesions. Mm-hmm. Jim Crum is with us from the DNR on this um, this bird. What do we call it then? Bird bird. <laughs> well, it's a. <laughs> idiopathic uh, bird mortality I idiopathic guess. <laughs> bird mortality i did hear where you, if you want to prevent it or try to prevent it from spreading you can uh, make sure you clean or if you have bird feeder make sure you clean it thoroughly maybe use a, a bleach um uh concoction same way with um you know bird water um bird baths yeah, yeah, those for bird baths yes yeah. uh, well, we've asked people. It, it was put out as a statewide thing, but actually, it was meant to just refer to the people in the eastern Panhandle that had uh, experienced this unusual mortality. That they should take down their feeders for now as a precautionary thing. The rest of the people uh, can keep feeding their birds if they would like to. But we do remind people that there's a lot of other things out there that are transmitted at bird feeders and bird baths and that uh, they should take the responsibility to to clean those, you know, once or twice a month, and and uh, you know use warm soapy water and get the solids, and then use a bleach, ten uh, percent bleach solution to soak it to disinfect them, and then then put them back up. Jim, does and DNR do you all that on a routine basis? Yeah, that's a good a good suggestion. Jim, do, yeah. do you all DNR want to know if somebody has a, what they think is a confirmed case, or you already got enough info? Well, we we're still getting calls and. Uh, uh, we we accept uh, uh, year-round surveillance calls on people that have abnormal, uh, unusual mortality of wildlife, and uh, <clears throat> so we uh, right now they're directed to call our district offices and 
and we'll take the information. A lot of the calls that I've accepted so far are single birds, one bird here yeah, and there, yeah. and those kind of things. Well, but uh, if you have multiple birds, five or more, or call 11, the that's, DNR. that's the significant yeah. of it. Hey, Jim, we're going to have to leave it there. Appreciate it. Sorry we got to you late. This is Talkline on Jim Crum of DNR. This is Talkline on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Welcome back. Hour number two of Talk Line on the Metro News Radio Network all across the great state of West Virginia. John Decker is the senior national editor and White House correspondent for Great Television in West Virginia. That's WSAZ, WTAP, WDTV, and WVVA. John, good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Hoppy. How are you doing today? Fine, sir. Thank you. I just had Joe Manchin on last hour, and Manchin made clear, I believe, which is no surprise, that he he was part of that group, of course, that came out of the White House with Joe Biden, and he's all in on this um, $1.2 trillion traditional infrastructure package. And he also said, as you might expect, that that should not, should not be coupled with another infrastructure deal that is more human infrastructure and Green New Deal, uh, which Democrats want to push and the president wants to push through uh, with 50 votes. So armed with that information, which I'm sure not is new, not is not new to you. Give me the way forward on both. That's a great question. Uh, the way forward is trying to convince uh, Republicans on the right and Democrats on the left that this is the only path forward if you're going to have passage of an infrastructure spending bill in this congressional session. And that's not an easy task, Hoppy. It's not an easy task because we know that uh, conservative Republicans like Mitch McConnell, like Marco Rubio, for instance, are still not signing on to this compromise legislation that Senator Manchin has signed on to and helped negotiate. And Democrats on the far left, the progressives, also still not signing on to the legislation, including uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They say that this particular piece of legislation is not enough. They would like to see a $6 trillion infrastructure spending bill. But they know that that's not going, that there is no chance for that. There's zero chance for that. And the only chance for that, I say only, but I'll, I'll defer to you, would be that if there is a separate package, they could get through on reconciliation with 50 votes somehow, some way. That's right. And, you know, based upon your conversation with Senator Manchin, also what I've heard uh, and read uh, coming from another senator in the Senate who's a Democrat, uh, that's Kristen Sinema, they are are not going to sign on to this idea of reconciliation for just about any legislative item that President Biden wants. Uh, you had uh, Senator Manchin support the COVID relief bill through that process, but I think that's it. Uh, that's it as far as seeing Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema sign on to reconciliation for any other aspect 
of President Biden's legislative agenda. I, I think, John, that Manchin, and sometimes it's difficult to sift through it all, but I, I think that Manchin was keeping the door open on on the potential for reconciliation, depending on what's in this other bill, this human infrastructure, Green New Deal. You know, he, he kind of threw out a number, like a trillion dollars, but he just threw that out there. So it sounds to me like he might be open, but certainly if it gets anywhere near the kind of numbers that progressives are talking about, I, I, I don't see him at all getting on board with that. Tell me this, what what is the reluctance of some Republican leaders like McConnell on the $1.2 trillion eight-year deal? What's their reluctance there? Well, what I've heard from a number of Republicans, including from Senator Marco Rubio, is just because of the flip-flops that we saw after the deal was announced by President Biden, they're not trusting of the process. They're not trusting of the White House. They are concerned of what they call um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, some sort of uh, bait and switch situation. Yeah, bait and switch where, you know, you, you have uh, President Biden touting a deal. And then, you know, uh, shortly thereafter, as he did, uh, saying, I'm going to veto it if it's not attached to the larger spending plan. And then, of course, walking it back. But just that um, just what occurred on Friday and over the weekend has been skittish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to speak, Hoppy, in terms of supporting this deal. We'll see. You know, maybe they'll get through it. Maybe President Biden will assure the leader of Republicans in the Senate to urge uh, his Republican Party to uh, sign on to it. But if, that's no guarantee, of course, for what may happen in the House of Representatives, even yeah. if that happens. And as you know, Senator Manchin, uh, you know, I, I think he does a very good job representing his constituents. Uh, but he does not speak for the entire Senate, uh, no. and he does not speak for the House of Representatives. So just because this deal was ironed out uh, amongst uh, 10 U.S. senators in the White House does not mean that it's necessarily headed towards passage in the House or the Senate and signed by President Biden. John Deckers with us, senior national editor and White House correspondent for Gray Television. Uh, John, President Biden is headed to Wisconsin to pitch the bipartisan infrastructure deal. That would be an opportunity to say unequivocally, uh, I think he has tried to say it, but again, he's he's bounced around a little bit to say unequivocally that this is the bill and other stuff is separate. He will have a chance to do that today. You are absolutely right. Uh, there's a small group of uh, my colleagues traveling with him to uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, and there will be an opportunity not only in the statements, but maybe if he takes a, a question or two from uh, the press corps that's traveling with him. Uh, still no word from the two senators that represent the state of Wisconsin as to whether or not they could support uh, this uh, bipartisan compromise legislation. Uh, and I think this, this trip is, is aimed at them, uh, so to speak. You have a very interesting state in Wisconsin because yep. you have uh, a Republican who's very conservative, Senator Johnson. You have uh, a, a Democrat also representing the state in the Senate uh, who's on the far left. And so uh, you, you need to reach out to, to those folks as well as the public at large. And that, I think, is the, the sole reason for the trip to Wisconsin today. John, Donald Trump is getting back out there. He was at a rally in he Ohio, is. and now he's heading to the border. What do you have there? Tomorrow, he heads to uh, the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, he will visit a portion of the wall that was built during his four years in office. Uh, and I would certainly expect him to make some remarks in which he will be critical of the Biden administration for the large influx of migrants heading to the U.S.-Mexico border since he left the White House. He'll also have an opportunity to sit down for uh, an interview with Sean Hannity. I think it'll be a sort of town hall type of format. 
Uh, and so, yes, you are absolutely right. Former President Trump getting out there with that uh, rally in Ohio over the weekend, uh, the event tomorrow down to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and I think he's he's getting, you know, a little frustrated just uh, sort of being out of the limelight a little bit. Maybe that's why he's hitting the road for these for these two trips. John, New York prosecutors uh, have have been pouring over documents that were subpoenaed from Donald Trump and his businesses. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation that there may be indictments coming, if not from not for Donald Trump, but people who were uh, involved in running his businesses. And Trump attorneys are meeting with those prosecutors today. What's that all about? The the meeting is associated with these attorneys making a last ditch plea to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the New York State Attorney General's Office not to bring charges specifically, Hoppy, against the Trump organization, that's former President Trump's company, uh, for its financial doings. Uh, There has been a a grand jury that was impaneled several months ago uh, by the Manhattan DA's office, and the thinking is is that it could be this week uh, that an indictment could be announced against the Trump organization, not so much against individuals, although I would not... uh, um, you know, I would not be surprised if that happens, and the individuals being those that uh, run the numbers for the Trump organization, mm-hmm. like the CFO, the chief financial officer, rather than pre- former President Trump or uh, any of his family. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, again, I would not be surprised to see an indictment announced at some point during the week against the Trump organization. Uh, Finally, John, Maricopa County, which has been the subject of reviews, recounts, and now this quote-unquote audit of election results, and Maricopa County has decided they're going to replace the voting machines, and that is linked to the fact that this company doing this audit, which I think is a a real, is is bogus because it is run by a, uh, a Donald Trump supporter and a conspiracy theorist himself. But anyway, uh, they took possession of ballots and voting machines, and now Maricopa County says we can't use those machines again. And the reason being, Hoppy, is because they can't trust uh, this private contractor with what they've perhaps done with these voting machines while they've been in their possession. And so it's going to cost Maricopa County, that's the largest county in Arizona. Uh, Phoenix is a part of uh, Maricopa County. It's going to cost that county literally tens of millions of dollars to replace these voting machines that are now in the possession of this private contractor. And I agree that this is not, uh, it's a so-called audit. We already know that in Maricopa County, there have been two recounts that have occurred and no wrongdoing, no fraudulent voting was found in in any of uh, those particular uh, recounts that were done by the book. This one, uh, I, you know, I, I'm very skeptical in terms of what this company is doing. Uh, but you see what happens when these audits happen. Uh, you, at least as it relates to Maricopa County, you can't necessarily trust, uh, you know, the fact that these voting machines, voting equipment is now in possession of a private contractor. Yeah. John Decker, Senior National Editor and White House Correspondent for Great Television in West Virginia, WSAZ, WTAP, WDTV, and WVVA. John, thanks a lot. Talk soon. Thank you, Hoppy. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Talk line continues, 1-800-765-8255. Text me, 304-TALK-304. Email, Hoppy, the election was not stolen. How could it be? Trump was on the same ballot as everyone else. If the Democrats really wanted to steal the election, how is it that the GOP picked up so many seats in the House? Fact is, too many voters that wanted to give Trump a chance in 2016 just because they were fed up with his bratty behavior. 
not necessarily the other Republicans who were running. Many large companies have come to West Virginia to pursue work, <clears throat> excuse me, with the federal operations recruited by the High Technology Foundation. These employers bring with them high-paying jobs in STEM fields. Opportunities are available right here at home. Visit Come Home 2, the number 2, Come Home 2, wv.com to register today. With increased need due to COVID-19, West Virginia food banks have faced increased costs. Senator Manchin and Senator Capito can help families across the Mountain State by supporting additional food bank administrative funding. Paid for by Facing Hunger Food Bank and Mountaineer Food Bank for a hunger-free West Virginia. Count on ZMM Architects and Engineers to make sure your project is done right. From the very first planning meeting, through construction, and for the life of your building, ZMM's integrated approach combines architecture and interior design, as well as civil, structural, mechanical, and electrical engineering, creating a comprehensive, award-winning team to manage every phase of your project. Online at ZMM.com. ZMM Architects and Engineers. You see us in your community every day. One in five West Virginian children are food insecure. Senator Manchin and Senator Capito need to continue to step up to reauthorize child nutrition programs that connect our kids with nutritious meals. Paid for by Facing Hunger Food Bank and Mountaineer Food Bank for a hunger-free West Virginia. You're listening to Talkline on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. News this morning. The biggest stories from around the state of West Virginia. When you want them. Chris Lawrence at the Anchor Desk. We are getting your day set to start in West Virginia. Jake Flatley with in-depth stories. State lawmakers approving most of Governor Jim Justice's requests last week during a special session to allocate a quarter billion dollars to certain agencies and projects. Kyle Wiggs at the Sports Desk. The longest athletic season in West Virginia high school sports history is over with all three state baseball championships to Decided in AAA Bridgeport wins again. Seven straight AA Logan wins. Single A Moorfield wins a third consecutive class single A title. And Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary. The traveling public from outside our state is finding out what those of us who live here already know. West Virginia State Parks are a great destination. Anytime, anywhere, on any device. Metro News this morning. Listen where you get your favorite podcasts and online at WVMetroNews.com. Hey there, Dave Weekly here. Metro News Hotline presents what's trending in sports, music, movies, tech, television, and more from a Mountain State point of view. Renowned local and national guests pepper the daily lineup with authoritative insights and commentary on a wide variety of topics from West Virginia high school sports to the financial markets. Join the fun. Every day, Coop and I dip into irreverent discussions with calls, texts, tweets, the question of the day, and the always popular in or out. Metro News Hotline, weekdays from 3 to 6 on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Your source for news in the Mountain State is Metro News. Weekday mornings, start your day with the morning news. Three hours of the biggest stories across West Virginia, along with sports, weather, and more. Stay updated throughout the day with reports at half past each hour. And find all the info you need on your schedule at WVMetroNews.com. The news you want from the name you trust. Metro News, for 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. News Talk Line with Hoppy Kirchival is brought to you by Encova Insurance. Encircling you with coverage to protect what you care about most. Visit Encova.com to learn more. 
Talk line from the Encova Insurance Studios. What's in a number if you match just six of 25 correctly playing cash 25 from the West Virginia Lottery? You'll take home a top prize of $25,000. Drawings are held Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. It only costs a dollar to play. With four drawings each week, the odds are pretty good. You're going to have fun playing cash 25. Text Hoppy, in 1984, I had an opportunity to be on an Olympic team as a decathlete, but because of an injury... I was run over by a car while training because of an injury. I didn't. I feel that would have been such an honor to represent my country. Someone should explain to this young woman what an honor it is to represent this country. Thank you from Phil in Clarksburg. Hoppy had a robin land on my head momentarily. It then flew a short distance, maybe 15 feet. We looked at each other for about 10 seconds and it flew away. This occurred in South Charleston. I wonder if it was a victim of this new illness the nobody nobody knows yet what exactly what it is or what's causing it yet uh, mostly it's impacting birds in the eastern panhandle not necessarily in other parts of the state although it may it may and if you think it's if you come across a bird that has died or infected you might want to call the the dnr Happy Republicans can use the excuse of not trusting the infrastructure bill, but that's just an excuse to say no to anything that involves Biden. And that is a big mistake, says the texter. Happy, the government seems to be handing out a lot of money. Where in the world is my income tax refund? I did my taxes two and a half months ago. Where's my tax refund? Let me bring in Simon Owen. Fox News Radio in the London Bureau, not about uh, Noel's tax refund, but about other things. Simon, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Happy. Very well, thanks. Uh, good. So the United States conducted airstrikes on two uh, military installations that were uh, Iranian-backed militias in eastern uh, Syria and in parts of Iraq yesterday. What was that all about? Well, it was a response, Hoppy, to a spate of attacks that uh, have targeted U.S. troops stationed principally in Iraq over the past few months. And the particular thing about this spate of attacks is that they've been these militia groups, which are supported by Iran and suspected by the U.S. of, of conducting these attempted strikes targeting U.S. forces in the Middle East, they've started using drones to carry out these attacks. And so these are cheaper than perhaps getting hold of a, of a missile. You can put a drone together, send it up into the sky, arm it with explosives, and then it kind of dive bombs towards its particular target. It's a new kind of weapon, and it's a new kind of warfare, which is raising concerns among American officials. And this has been happening a number of times over the past few months. And so just like in February, when we saw some of these attacks, and President Biden responded by ordering airstrikes on these militias. This was the same story this week. We saw another spate of the drone attacks and then another response with, on this occasion, three sets of airstrikes targeting three particular locations. Two of them were in Syria. One of them was in Iraq. They were all fairly close to, to one another. But I think the question, Hoppy, is, is what comes next? Mm. There's no indication from the White House that this is to be seen as the start of a whole flurry of interactions between the U.S. military and these Iranian-backed militias. And in fact, the White House has said that this particular round of airstrikes was designed to be defensive and was designed to limit 
escalations. And yet it was followed by a statement from the militia groups calling for revenge. And then later yesterday, so less than 24 hours after the airstrikes, the U.S. military said American forces in Syria came under attack from rockets. We don't know who they came from. If you're putting two and two together, you'd probably think it was an Iranian-backed militia. Mm -hmm. Nobody was hurt. And the military says American troops responded with artillery fire. But that does raise the possibility that this could end up going back and forth, which is not what we understand the Biden administration is hoping for. Well, it comes at a time when the U.S. and Iran are trying to resume negotiations. It comes at a time when Iran has elected a new president. It comes at a time when America is withdrawing its uh, last fighting forces from Iraq. So it's a very critical time in that region. Yes, and the emphasis has been, you know, particularly there's a lot of focus at the moment on the drawdown in Afghanistan, which is racing forward I'm sorry, by Afghan- all accounts. I said Iraq. I'm in Afghanistan. I apologize. Well, in, in, indeed. And, and President Biden has said that the, the aim was to have this withdrawal complete by September 11th, so the 20th anniversary of the attacks that started the initial um, invasion. But there's countless reports out there that actually it's probably going to be mainly done by July 4th, so well ahead of schedule. So, yes, I mean, that's been one of the big focuses of the administration is this drawdown from Afghanistan. There's an awful lot of speculation and concern about what might come next for Afghanistan. But at the same time, across the Middle East, you know, for years, and you mentioned the Iran nuclear deal, the agreement with the Iranians that the Biden administration is is trying to revive. One of the criticisms of the Iran nuclear deal was that it looked at Iran's nuclear activities, its nuclear power plants, nuclear research centers, and so on. But it didn't go further. It didn't try and combat Iran's support for exactly these militia groups, Mm -hmm. for instance. And that's one of the things that President Trump was so critical about. He reckoned that it should have been feasible to strike a broader deal with the Iranians. I think the Obama administration would would dispute that. But either way, there's always been this question for years now, you know, what do you do about Iran's meddling in other countries in the Middle East and beyond? And this is a situation where the U.S. has now conducted airstrikes on these Iranian-backed militias, just as the U.S. is trying to get the Iranians to agree to a new era of diplomacy. Simon Owen, Fox News Radio in London. Simon, 90 seconds. So is Kim Jong-un looking for a spot on The Biggest Loser? The Biggest Loser, which is a popular show in the United States of people losing weight. Well, maybe. I mean, he's certainly shed some pounds. And one of the things, this has been sort of speculated among the the North Korea watcher community, which is a group of experts around the world who keep very close eye on Kim Jong-un and his appearances. And actually, over the past few months, some estimates reckon he's lost a good 40 pounds, maybe more. He's definitely lost weight. But what's curious this week, Hoppy, is that North Korea is acknowledging this itself. And we saw it on state TV. They've been running before and after pictures of Kim Jong-un. Mm. They had a, a clip, a quote from a man, a Pyongyang resident, saying everyone's eyes welled up when they saw Kim Jong-un looking emaciated. Now, for the record, he does not look emaciated. He's lost some weight, but he does not look caught. But, you know, people on the outside have been talking about Kim Jong-un's weight for some time. To have North Korea acknowledging it is more unusual. And it sounds gossipy. The reason this concerns people is that, you know, this is a difficult, potentially unstable country with nuclear weapons. Anything about North Kim Jong-un's health is an international matter of concern. Yeah. And even with weight loss, he is well above the weight standard for 99.9% of his people. 
that country. Uh, Simon Owen, Fox News Radio in London. Simon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Hoppy. All right. Kim Jong-un's weight loss. Let's see. Text. Text. Hoppy, why were they allowed to get those machines in Arizona? I, um, because they the, the legislature there approved, right? Or the Arizona Senate approved this quote-unquote audit, giving them access to the ballots, the machinery. All right, we'll be back here on Metro News Talk Line. Stay with us. More to come in three minutes. This is Talk Line on Metro News. Metro News is the voice of West Virginia. It's 11.30. Let's get a news update. Check in with the Metro News Radio Network. Find out what's happening statewide this hour all across the great state of West Virginia. West Virginia Metro News. I'm Chris Lawrence, a Putnam County woman charged with misdemeanors tied to the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol will enter a plea bargain over her alleged actions that day. Grayson Courtright of Hurricane due for a plea hearing July 20th in U.S. District Court in Washington. Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhaney says the charges against her are uh, not tied to any violent acts. She's accused of going into the Capitol um, on on January 6th and and wandering around with a members-only sign for the U.S. Senate until an officer took it away, uh, but is not accused of violent behavior of anything of the sort anything of the sort court riders from hurricane was in her senior year as a mathematical economics major at the university of kentucky and described her presence at the capitol on social media posts that were later deleted but screenshots were preserved and described in an affidavit the lady who was guided Kanawha county through the pandemic is out dr sherry young announcing monday that she would resign her post as executive director and chief health officer for the Kanawha charleston health department uh, she indicated she was leaving to pursue another opportunity. However, did not indicate what that might be. One person died Monday in a crash on U.S. Route 35 in Mason County. According to authorities, that crash involved a U. The incident occurred near the Putnam County line about 545. You're listening to Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Getting a COVID-19 vaccine is the best way to protect you and your loved ones. The vaccines have been tested. They're safe. And they work and they're available at pharmacies in many locations across West Virginia. Making the choice to get vaccinated means getting West Virginia back to regular life. Here's West Virginia University men's basketball coach, Bob Huggins. The pandemic took away the greatest home court advantage in college basketball, our Mountaineer fans. I'm Coach Huggins, and I'm tired of empty arenas, masks, and social distancing. That's why I got my COVID vaccine. They're safe, free, and available almost everywhere without hassle or delay. Let's work as a team, get vaccinated, and fill a Coliseum next season. I'm Coach Huggins. I got my COVID shot. Now the ball's in your hands. Get your free COVID-19 vaccine today. Find a location near you. Visit vaccinate.wv.gov. The State Department of Health and Human Resources added just 25 new COVID cases to its numbers today. The agency said there are now 1,378 active cases, and they also added one fatality, an 85-year-old man from Nicholas County. There have now been 2,879 deaths blamed on the pandemic in West Virginia. Nearly 53% of state residents over the age of 12 have been fully vaccinated at this point. Governor Justice and his administration addressing the numbers and vaccination efforts in the COVID-19 briefing happening right now. From the Metro News Anchor Desk, I'm Chris Lawrence.
Talk line on Metro News. Welcome back to the Encova Insurance Studios. The United Church of Christ, eight United Church of Christ congregations located near Washington, D.C., and this includes Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, and West Virginia. Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, and West Virginia. So eight United Church of Christ congregations have come together. They've raised contributions from wider church agency. And what they've done with the money is, what they're doing with the money, is they're paying off over $9 million in medical debt in four states, including 47 counties in West Virginia. You follow me? Reverend Tim Tutt is senior minister of the Westmoreland Congregational United Church of Christ, and he organized the effort in D.C. to abolish that $9 million in medical debt for 7,800 households in West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. Reverend Tutt, good morning. Welcome to TalkLine. How are you, sir? I'm good, Hoppy. How are you? I'm well. Where in the world did this idea come from? Well, I, I have to say, we uh, we stole it from some other church folks. I, I'm not embarrassed to say that. Uh, a group of United Church of Christ uh, churches in Chicago did this about three years ago. They realized that many of their neighbors were suffering from medical debt. They ran across a nonprofit group called RIP Medical Debt that was paying off uh, medical debt for people. And that group of churches in Chicago got together, raised some money, paid off several million dollars worth of debt. Um, other churches in our denomination around the country have said, hey, that is a great thing to do, so we're going to follow that example. That's what we did here in, in the D.C. area, spreading out into, as you said, West Virginia, up into New Jersey and Delaware. So we, we borrowed the idea from some other church folks and glad to do it. Uh, Reverend, how much money did you raise? So eight churches came together here in the D.C. area. We raised $65,522.21. Um, and then we were able to work with RIP Medical Debt to purchase $9 million worth of medical debt uh, and pay it off for individuals to relieve them of that debt. So you can buy medical debt for pennies on the dollar, which just shows you how, how out of whack the system is. doesn't take much money to, uh, to buy that debt and pay it off and really help a lot of people. So, Reverend, so this... Um RIP medical debt, that then negotiates with the hospitals and I guess negotiates down the bills? Right, right. And by the time it gets to this point, it's gone far beyond a hospital. A person goes to the hospital, they have surgery, maybe their insurance covers 80% of the cost, but they've still got 20% left. And that may be $1,000 and maybe $20,000. They can't pay it. The hospital tries to collect for a while. They eventually turn it over to a debt collection agency Maybe that debt collection agency can't collect because the person just doesn't have the money. They, in turn, uh, sell that debt to yet another company. Um, and that company has bought this debt sort of banking on getting something rather than nothing. And along come uh, a group of committed Christians to say, hey, we're going to help those people out by, by paying that debt off for pennies on the dollar. Reverend that, Tim, that nonprofit is doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reverend Tim Tutt is with the senior minister of Westmoreland Con- uh, Congregational United Church of Christ, uh, organized effort to pay off the medical debt of some 7,800 households in West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. And it looks like, I'm doing some quick math, you helped uh, 500, is it already done or you're doing it? 556 households in West Virginia, Reverend? It's already done. Um, We actually bought the debt in April. So today we're just celebrating the fact that uh, during the pandemic, our church folks came together. The pandemic showed us again the, the health needs in this country. So we raised the money during the pandemic, gave it to RIP Medical Debt, they then uh, work to figure out who's 
who's out there with this debt, um, and they paid it off in April. So these folks in West Virginia should get a letter. Um, we don't know who they are. We don't know their personal information, um, but they should get a letter in the mail before too long saying your debt has been paid by this organization of churches simply because we think that's the right thing to do. That's the way that we love our neighbor and help heal people who are in need around us. Well, that is, uh, that's quite a... <laughs> I mean, I, I can't imagine. And in West Virginia, I mean, you're in D.C., you know West Virginia, and we do have struggles with poverty. Um, a lot of people have medical conditions with medical costs. Uh, it, a lot of times the insurance or Medicaid or Medicare doesn't cover everything. So there are costs. There are costs, and, and it can be pretty overwhelming for folks. So that's going to be – I mean, they're going to get that letter and go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm looking at the list um, from West Virginia – Seven households in Wayne County, for instance, an average debt uh, of $6,000. And if you don't have $6,000, you just don't have it, right? Right. Um, And so these people are in debt. Uh, Statistics and polls show that they've been cutting back on money they would spend on food or clothing or other medical problems, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have the money. That $6,250 is never going to get paid they're going to have this collection agencies coming after them forever and ever. And we were like, okay, we can short circuit that and help these people and also work to change the system, right? We need to transform the medical system, the debt collection system, so this doesn't happen to people. But I'm just so proud of the members of our congregation, the members of the United Church of Christ who've been able to pool the resources for the common good. Yeah. Why this? I mean, look, there are a lot of needs, Reverend, as you well know, as a reverend, I mean, the, the, the yeah. list of needs is endless. So why this? Right. Well, first of all, you're preaching to the choir there, and, and like uh, in response to any good preacher, I would say, Amen, Amen, preacher, Amen. There are many needs. Um, you know, I'm I'm fortunate. Uh, the congregation I serve is is trying to focus on various needs. Right. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make sure that uh, people aren't killing each other on the streets. We're trying to work on um, inclusion for LGBTQ people. We're trying to work on helping immigrants and refugees, and we're working on this medical debt thing. Um, it, it just came to our attention the the uh, pandemic really brought the healthcare needs to the fore um, when we saw people dying in this country, right? Mm-hmm. People going to the hospital, and we were like, "That is a need that is pressing right now." And you know, we set a goal of twenty five thousand dollars. We ended up collecting sixty five thousand dollars because people were like, "Yes, that is something that's practical, that's doable. It makes a difference in people's lives right now." Reverend Tim Tutt, Senior Minister of the Westmoreland Congregation United Methodist, United Church, not United Methodist, United Church of Christ. Uh, they organized this effort to abolish $9 million in medical debt for 7,800 households in West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. Reverend, thanks. Thank you. Hey, thank, thank you, Hoppy. Uh, don't worry about confusing us with the Methodists. They're pretty good people, too. We're <laughs> glad to be a part of anyone doing good work in the world, so thanks so much. All right, Reverend, thank you. Good to talk to you. That's pretty amazing. I saw that, and I thought, that's that's pretty wild. I that's that's a pretty neat thing to do. We'll take a break. Talk line continues. When we come back, we are sorry to lose this person in the fight against the pandemic. And that story is next. 
Want to have some real family fun? Take a road trip to the wilds, one of the most innovative wildlife conservation centers in the world. But lucky for you, it's just a short drive away to a full day of excitement. You can see exotic wildlife, take open-air safari tours, zip line, fish, enjoy a horseback ride, and extend your stay by experiencing our unique lodging at the wilds. If you're ready to zip it, pour it, meet it, or catch it, make plans to visit the wilds in Cumberland, Ohio. Reserve your soon-to-be memorable visit today at thewilds.org. If you are a senior or someone with disabilities, there are many programs that can help you live safely and more independently in your own home. The West Virginia Aging and Disability Resource Center can help you find and receive the services and supports you need, including in-home workers to help you with everyday tasks. To find out more information, call the West Virginia Aging and Disability Resource Center at 866-981-ADRC. That's 866-981-2372 or visit wvnavigate.org. This ad is supported by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as part of a financial assistance award beginning in 2011 and totaling over $19 million with 92.4% funded by CMS HHS and 7.6% funded by the state of West Virginia totaling over $1.6 million. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views nor an endorsement by CMS HHS or the U.S. government. This is Talk Line on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Hey everybody, it's Tony Caridi. And I'm Brad Howe. And that makes two of the three guys that bring you the podcast entitled Creatively Enough. Three guys before the game. It's our opportunity to really drill down on WVU football and basketball. We break down the opponent and then review every single game. We'll give you some numbers. We'll bicker back and forth. We'll take your calls, your texts, your tweets, and get into some of your questions. And we invite you to join us each and every episode at Three Guys Before the Game from Metro News. Nobody covers West Virginia like Metro News. Start each weekday at 6.06 a.m. with the morning news. Veteran anchors Chris Lawrence and Jeff Jenkins deliver the day's biggest stories, along with in-depth reports from Alex Thomas and Jake Flatley. The morning news also brings you the latest in sports from Kyle Wiggs, Hoppy Kerchival's daily commentary, and the entertainment report. Get your news from the names you know and trust on the Metro News Radio Network and at WVMetroNews.com. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brad Howe, and I invite you to check out our new podcast, The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings. Each week, I'll be joined by DraftKings experts as we dive into the NFL, college football and basketball, the NBA, and Major League Baseball with actionable information you can use. We'll look at everything, including player props, DFS plays, and the latest odds boost to help you find an edge. The Game Within the Game, presented by DraftKings, is available everywhere you get your podcasts and at WVMetroNews.com. Your source for what's happening in West Virginia is WVMetroNews.com. Get the latest statewide news, sports reports from WVU, Marshall, and your local high school teams. Explore the great outdoors with Chris Lawrence. Read Hoppy Kirchival's daily commentary and catch up on your favorite Metro News programs and podcasts. Stay informed anytime, anywhere with WVMetroNews.com. Metro News, for 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. Metro News Talk Line with Hoppy Kirchival is brought to you by Encova Insurance. Encircling you with coverage to protect what you care about most. Visit Encova.com to learn more. 
Would you like to get vaccinated against COVID-19 but want assistance in finding a location near you? Call West Virginia COVID-19 Vaccine Info Line at 1-833-734-0965. That's 1-833-734-0965. Speaking of COVID, one of the true warriors, and there have been many and are many in this state, hundreds of people who've stepped up for the last year and a half to help this state and individuals through the pandemic. But uh, one I want to acknowledge today because she's leaving is Dr. Sherry Young. Dr. Young is leaving her position as the Kanawha Charleston Health Department Executive Director and Chief Health Officer, and she joins us on Metro News Talk Line. Uh, Dr. Young, say it ain't so. Say you're not leaving. Oh, uh, please don't leave. I <laughs> well, I will be staying on as interim, so I'm here for anything that the county needs. I'm not stepping very far. I'm actually going to be building networks uh, across the river, helping out CAMC and the West Virginia Health Network, taking what we've learned in COVID and improving patient care for patients all over West Virginia. So I'm leaving this desk, but I'm not going very far. So you're going to work for CAMC? Yes. I'll be specifically with the West Virginia Health Network, which is an ACO, uh, patient-centered, physician-driven. And what we do is we make sure that people get the care they need, actually trying to keep them out of the hospital, keeping them at home, making sure they're getting their medications, their uh, oxygen, things that they need, so that they can be healthier, safer, and and actually stay out of the hospital. As well. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I think that's an admirable goal. You, uh, as I said at the outset, there have been, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in West Virginia have been on the front lines from the very beginning. It has been for you folks. It has been exhausting. It has been at times dangerous. It has been at times, I'm sure, very frustrating and confronting uh, a novel virus. And you've been there. You've been there every day. So props to you. Did it it finally just wear you out? Well, (laughs) you know, it's a hobby. Everything has to do with timing in life. And, um, of course, I've had opportunities to leave West Virginia. I've very quickly told them all no. Um, When this opportunity to help expand healthcare in West Virginia and help West Virginia patients came at the time when COVID seems to be at a manageable pace, it just seems like the right thing to do. Um, we've been in this fight, as you know, for 485 days. My teammates are the best teammates on earth. We have proved that this morning. Uh, it was released. We were highlighted in Time Magazine for um, all the efforts that, that we've put forth in that 485 days. I, I would do 485 more if they needed me. And I'll, I'll have one foot firmly planted in the seat until they find my replacement. So um, it, if anything would get worse, I'm here. Um, but no, I'm energized. I'm ready to go. Let's go help some more people. How many times during the last 400 plus days that you mentioned, were you just at wit's end? Several. Um, and I know people say that, yes, I, I'm always smiling and, and I'm always trying to be the voice of reason, but I have a lot of counselors with me, friends that are with me and, um, leadership that helped guide what we do. It was never, nothing was ever just my idea. This is something that we have lots of leaders from lots of agencies, why the health command structure works, why we bounce ideas off each other. And some days it's uh, somebody else's turn to have a bad day. And we do, we support each other and we get through it. Um, it, Has every day been easy? No. Would screaming, crying, throwing a fit and, uh, just absolutely making the worst of everything help. That wasn't going to help either. So uh, 
I have to credit the team. The health command has absolutely kept me strong through all of this. I'm here to support them. And in fact, a lot of the work that we're doing, we're going to continue, but we're just going to make it bigger and better. You have, you've seriously, you've just been a rock. I mean, you have, and you've, you've, you've engaged the press, which then is the vehicle to keep the public posted. And you've, uh, you and your team have been magnificent. I mean that, I mean that with what you all have done. And it's because of what uh, you and others, and again, I don't want to leave out others. Many others have done and continue to do. I remember going to, to get my shots at the, at the location in Morgantown and just being so impressed. Of course, you're in Kanawha, but in Morgantown being so impressed by the organization, by the people there who were professionally and pretty cheerily doing their job. It's really, it's heartwarming. The, the response that West Virginia's had to this. I mean, it's been terrible, but boy, a lot of good people have done a lot of good things, you included. Absolutely, Hoppy, and thank you. And thank you to the press that got the word out to people when we were still learning. When we first got our first case in back in March of 2020, we didn't know much about the virus. We didn't know much about the transmission, who was safe, who wouldn't be safe. We had teams of people going out there putting their lives in front of and putting themselves in front of the firing squad not knowing what they were facing that's our healthcare community our first responders um the press everyone we we all have been in this fight for 485 days and it's not over yet we we still have some work to do but we're at a pace now that if we continue with uh, our vaccinations it's a magnificent obligation we need to get more people vaccinated and keep the work going so we don't go backwards but thank you thank thanks to the press and I have to thank the community. The community is who rallied around everything that we needed, including if we put somebody in quarantine, we figured out with our community partners how to get them food, how to get their medicines. None of this was an easy lift. And for every little thing that people saw on the outside, there were several layers of things that needed to be done behind the scenes. And so I'm really proud that you're part of this team, that uh, the media has been so great to us. And I'm so proud of the public for getting to the other side of it. But with that said, let's not let our guard down completely. We still have a little ways to go with it. Well, and, and on that, Doctor, frankly, uh, the the vaccination right now, you know, the cases are, are, are way, way, way down. That's a, that's a very good thing. Uh, but the vaccination rate is also way, way, way down. And also, we have our first case of the Delta variant, which turned up in McDowell County. It was going to get here eventually. And the Delta variant is particularly stubborn. So how concerned are you that we could have another spike at some point? Well, I'm concerned if we don't act quickly. The fact that we're watching for the Delta variant should tell the public that, yes, we are diligent about this. We are testing for this. We know that it's probably going to be the predominant variant over the next several weeks. But we have enough information, and that's where the media is so important, too. People have the education. If you have not had your COVID-19 vaccine, please get it. We are here every day at the health department, and we have several clinics throughout the week for people to attend. If not, go to a pharmacy, find your health care provider, get that COVID vaccine. It's the last defense we have. The Delta variant is a very aggressive variant as far as hospitalizations, poor outcome. It is the variant that we saw uh, wreaking havoc in uh, late 2020 uh, in India. And so we know uh, through the evolution of everything that we've learned over the last 18 months, let's not forget it so quickly that we need to be careful. Wear your mask if you haven't been vaccinated. Wear your mask if you're in large crowds. But if you have not had that vaccine, please, let's not write another page in history when we have everything right at the finish line. 
Let's get that vaccine so we can get rid of this variant. Dr. Sherry Young leaving her position at the Canola Charleston Health Department as executive director and chief health officer and taking on new responsibilities. Dr. Young, again, thank you for all your cooperation, all your work, and we'll hopefully stay in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Hoppy. And like I said, I'm not going very far. All right. Very good. Just across the river, right? Just across the river. All right. Thank you very much, Doctor. We'll be right back. Moving West Virginia forward starts with improving the schools that serve students all across the Mountain State. The Thrasher Group's team of dedicated K-12 architects and designers bring an innovative perspective to the education market and stand ready to give West Virginia classrooms the progressive edge they deserve. Whether it's a simple classroom addition, a state-of-the-art athletic complex, or a brand-new facility, Thrasher's got it. Find out why Thrasher is the firm of first choice for K-12 design solutions at thethrashergroup.com. Are you ready to play in a whole new way? Try the game that's as easy as one, two, three. Kino Go! Step one, go to a local retailer. Step two, create a digital playslip with a lottery app or fill out a paper playslip. Step three, watch the Kino Go drawing. Draws take place every three minutes. Watch at a retailer or watch on the go in the app. It's fast and fun with a chance to win up to $100,000. So start playing a whole new way today with the West Virginia Lottery. Please play responsibly at a distance. You're listening to TalkLine on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Metro News this morning. The biggest stories from around the state of West Virginia. When you want them. Chris Lawrence at the Anchor Desk. We are getting your day set to start in West Virginia. Jake Flatley with in-depth stories. State lawmakers approving most of Governor Jim Justice's requests last week during a special session to allocate a quarter billion dollars to certain agencies and projects. Kyle Wiggs at the Sports Desk. The longest athletic season in West Virginia high school sports history is over with all three state baseball championships decided in triple-a bridgeport wins again seven straight double-a logan wins single-a moorfield wins a third consecutive class single-a title and hoppy kerchival's daily commentary the traveling public from outside our state is finding out what those of us who live here already know west virginia state parks are a great destination anytime anywhere on any device metro news this morning listen where you get your favorite podcasts and online at wvmetronews.com Hey there, Dave Weekly here. Metro News Hotline presents what's trending in sports, music, movies, tech, television, and more from a Mountain State point of view. Renowned local and national guests pepper the daily lineup with authoritative insights and commentary on a wide variety of topics from West Virginia high school sports to the financial markets. Join the fun. Every day, Coop and I dip into irreverent discussions with calls, texts, tweets, the question of the day, and the always popular in or out. Metro News Hotline, weekdays from 3 to 6 on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Your source for news in the Mountain State is Metro News. Weekday mornings, start your day with the morning news. Three hours of the biggest stories across West Virginia, along with sports, weather, and more. Stay updated throughout the day with reports at half past each hour. And find all the info you need on your schedule at WVMetroNews.com. The news you want from the name you trust. Metro News. For 36 years, the voice of West Virginia. Talk on from the Encova Insurance Studios. What's in a number if you match just six of 25 correctly, playing cash 25 from the West Virginia Lottery? You'll take home a top prize of $25,000. Drawings are held Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. 
It only costs a dollar to play with four drawings each week. The odds are pretty good. You're going to have fun playing Cash 25. Text Toppy, I served and risked my life to protect the right. The Olympian has to show her protest. A master sergeant explained it to me best. We do not protect what is simply a piece of cloth, the flag. We fight for the people it flies over. And we sacrifice for the right and, dare I say, duty to fight the injustices that occur under that piece of cloth. So I see this young lady's actions as much more patriotic than those sycophantic paper patriots who whine but have never contributed to our great country, says the texter. Let's see. Hoppy, these people need to get that letter to their courthouse and get their liens released. And that's on the medical thing. Hoppy, it should be mentioned that Robert Byrd and other senators filibustered against the Civil Rights Act. Ended today. What now? It should be mentioned that Robert Byrd and other senators filibustered against the 1964 Civil Rights Act ended today. Oh, you mean today's the anniversary of it ending? Happy, don't pay hospital bills and do-gooders will take care of it pennies on the dollar. I pay my own for pennies on the dollar. Text Happy, sorry you caught hell today for explaining how the elections were valid and there was no massive vote fraud. Text Happy, Dr. Sherry Young's the epitome of credibility, especially in contrast to Anthony Fauci in the scientific community. Dwayne in Morgantown. Hi, Dwayne. Go ahead. Your turn. Hey, Happy. I have hey. a question for you. Yeah. What, what makes these auditors so bad and horrible? I keep hearing everybody say that the people doing the audits aren't aren't credible. Well, a couple things. A couple things is that this is a company that is headed by a guy who is a Trump supporter and a conspiracy theory guy. Number one, and it was hired by Republicans. It's a firm hired by Republicans. So I look at this and say, Dwayne, if the role were reversed. If this company was headed by a Democrat and Democrats had hired this company, what would we say? We'd say that has no credibility. How can we trust that company? Right. I also know that if the roles were reversed, the Democratic side would be saying, why are the Republicans spending so much money trying to get these things stopped? Why are they hiring defense attorneys to be in there to 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 put injunctions against these audits? I don't I don't if there's nothing to hide. And I tell you, I've looked at the research and they're actually being extremely transparent about what they're doing. You can go and find it. If, I mean, if you can find it, um, you can watch the live video feeds. I mean, there's all kinds. Of, and some of the people that are doing this aren't Republicans. They're independents. They, they've got backgrounds and, and, and stories about that. They just want to. They want to make sure. Well, I don't, I'm not. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't buy that. And I think even a lot of Republicans in Arizona are going. What are you doing? You're making us look like fools here. But uh, today, my focus was on that Michigan report. I think the Michigan report makes clear that uh, the election results stand in Michigan. This is Talk Line on Metro News, the voice of West Virginia. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. I'm Jane Secker, and you're listening to Episode 7 of Storycast 21. In 2021, a proposed breakaway of some of Europe's elite football clubs threatened to widen the divide between top teams and those who feel increasingly removed from the top tier. But a team that cost less than £10,000 to assemble struck a blow for the minnows and shook up the football establishment in 2012. This is 
a football fairy tale. James Hansen, striker. You know, all you ever dream about is playing at Wembley. Could be a chance, Hansen's in behind here, goes down under a challenge! My name is Tim Thornton. I work for Sky Sports News as a sports reporter. I don't think he played the ball. Hansen went down very easily. In 2009, James was a stacking shells in his local co-op supermarket near his home in Bradford. It, it was ideal, to be honest, and just walk down five minutes down to work and then get my shift done and then walk back home. One of the players who was uh, in the Bradford first team at the time, lived very close to the supermarket where James worked. And he used to wind James up saying if he could get the tin of beans off the top shelf for me because he was so tall. On the right-hand side, Doyle will whip cross his straight ball. You know, I was able to do a couple of nights a week and I was probably only working 20 hours a week. Not far off minimum wage, to be honest. This is a chance for City. There are three players in the box. Just a couple of years later, he and the City we're going to have the kind of Roy of the Rovers experience that just doesn't happen anymore in football. I grew up in Bolton Woods, which was um, just a little little town. Um, Played for their local team and then uh, moved houses to Idle when I was about 12, I think. Living in the city, um, got friends, obviously, when I grew up. All my friends were Bradford City supporters. Yeah, James, he grew up just a few minutes away from the Bradford training ground. I used to hear a lot of stories then about James and how promising he was. He was playing for one of the leading Saturday sides, Ecclesall United. Then he made the jump up to Geisley, one of the sides just outside the Football League before Bradford. In July 2009, decided to take him on trial. He ended up paying, yes, seven and a half thousand up front. And I think that at the time, that was the only fee Bradford had paid for a player for a long time. So they'd just been dealing with free agents and. What's interesting with Bradford is that there's a massive close connection between the fans and the club and that is tied into really what happened back in 1985 with the Bradford fire. Now these are extraordinary scenes at Valley Parade. It's supposed to be a day of celebration. It was the day that Bradford was celebrating winning the title. And the game has obviously had to stop. We saw the smoke about a minute ago. 56 people died that day. It started as a small fire in one end of the stand, but literally within seconds, within a minute, the fire had engulfed the whole stand and the memories will never go away for all those people who were involved that day. But a day of triumph could turn into a day of disaster here for Bradford. Yeah, there was a deep-rooted connection between the fans and the club going back to the fire. And Bradford later had got into the Premier League and... You know, there'd been a lot of celebration, a lot of hype around that. But once they dropped out of the Premier League, it had been a slide down the divisions from the Premier League to the Championship to League One and quickly into League Two. We need more more money, more employment, uh, more excitement uh, into the North in terms of... I think there's definitely a, a North-South divide in terms of, you know, Bradford very much a working-class city. 
If we could get more of the quantity of the south into the north, I think we'd both be better for it. Carl Smith. I've been a Bradford City supporter for nearly 30 years. The club had been in decline for years since kind of the Premier League days, uh, and it had been kind of supporting them through thin and thinner. So, you know, the, the club was in the doldrums, and, and, and the city probably to, to, to a certain extent as well. Bill Parkinson had taken over by 2012 and suddenly he got Bradford moving back up the tables again. You know, bear in mind where the club had been, we was staring relegation out of the football league in the face until he come in and he turned the club around. So the home team first, Dwight York. Quarterfinals, Capital One Cup. Number four. Number well, the League four, Cup easily. and the FA Cup are the two competitions where teams like Bradford in the lower echelons of the Football League can, can draw one of the big Premier League teams. So Bradford hadn't had any success in the Cup competitions. They'd drawn Notts County and then Watford, who were playing in the Championship at the time. Then it was Wigan, a Premier League team. And, and it was such an unbelievable feeling to be just playing against Premier League players and one on penalties and um, the feeling after that was just unbelievable and... and suddenly the fans were invested in this cup journey number three this is the last tie number three is Bradford City from League Two number one and number one is Alan's own club Arsenal Bradford against Arsenal and then Arsenal get pulled out of the hat in the next round and the tie was set for December the 11th 2012 Carl Smith. I remember I was walking up to the ground. It was a really cold night, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I'm sure the the, the, the kids that Arsenal Wenger usually puts out for these cup games will enjoy it. And over the tannoy, they were just announcing the Arsenal team, and I saw the likes of Bamal and Cazola, Ramsey, Wilshire. Uh, Podolski in the side and I thought oh blimey he's, he's really going for this one and he's taking it very seriously we was like thinking you know surely they ain't going to play all these but there was no other kids there and then when the team sheet come in <laughs> it was literally international after international Arsenal were one of the biggest clubs in English football at the time one of the biggest clubs in Europe in football, uh, you need always to keep your composure and as well, when you have the chances, take them. What will be the biggest lesson? They had a charismatic manager in Arsene Wenger and lots of superstar players as well. Yeah, looking at the team that night, there was definitely close to 50, 60 million in that team. A lot of these Bradford players had faced rejection elsewhere. Some were coming towards the end of their career. They weren't paying fees for players. James was a rarity that Bradford paid a fee for him. I think it was around £7,500 and a, a bag of balls, I think, they paid uh, Geisley for James Hansen. The manager and the assistant there said, look, enjoy yourselves. This is a full house at Bradford. You've done ever so well to get in. This is sort of your reward to play in front of 25000 that are going to be backing you all night. We kick taken upfield. It's one well by McHugh. So I was there on the night commentating for local radio. 
comes the corner, and he chanced, and he's over the bar. Thomas Bradford had weathered a bit of a storm very, very early on in the first few minutes, but they come out the other side of that. We dug in, and then we got we played to our strengths, where we, any chance we got, we, we put bodies in the box and, you know, made them ask a few questions of them. And... They'd not got up the pitch too often in the first sort of ten minutes of the game. And then... I think it was Naki Wells who got brought down for a, a free kick. 15 minutes played, 0-0 at Valley Parade on Paul Sport. Gary Jones on the free kick. I can remember it now, I think um, the ball's coming in. and It was a, a free kick that Gary Jones whipped in. It was flicked on at the near post. And... It's a chance, is it? Yeah! As he's flicked it, you know, I've looked behind me and I've seen Thomas from Brilliant falling in at the back post. And... Gary Thompson at the back post with the finish. And I think there was almost a, a feeling of disbelief around the ground that Bradford had taken the lead. City won, Arsenal nil. And once it got through to half time, everybody was looking at each other in disbelief. And it was almost as if second half normal service will be resumed and as it materialised, Bradford dug in again in the second half. All the ball they had, they didn't really create too much. And, you know, dare I say, we was quite comfortable in the game once we'd scored the goal. Um... And with every minute, you're looking at the, the clock all the time, thinking they're getting closer, they're getting closer. Because all the hits it, and Duke beats it away, and it goes back out to the far side. Up until, like, the 78th minute, I think that was the first shot on target. I think it was Santi Cazola. And then as you get into the last 10 minutes, you're thinking, you know what, we could do this. To Cazorla, it's going to come back in the mix again here. Arsenal, plenty of bodies in. And he comes back post, and they score! A back post header. And it's for Marlon, the captain, that's got it. With three minutes to go, Arsenal have equalised. And this game could be heading for extra time. But then you get to the 87th minute, in comes the cross, and for Marlon, nods the ball into the back of the net. And you thought, that's it, Bradford's chance has gone I'll be honest I think a lot of that lads heads did drop but you know thankfully we dug on in there and managed to take him to penalties Nathan Doyle to take the first one in the shootout he steps up and he scores great penalty in the bottom corner and City are ahead so Bradford some of their players held their nerve one or two didn't Alan Connell steps up and he scores yeah Arsenal their penalties weren't good They'd missed some penalties. And Arsene Wenger turns away in disgust. Stephen Darby, and then it came through to, to Richie Jones. Richie Jones, can he score? Can he book City's place in the semi-final of the Capital One Cup? If he scores, City are through and he's missed. Bradford were 3-2 up at the time, so if Richie Jones had scored, then Arsenal, there was no way back for them. And Arsenal... I've got a chance to get out of jail again. Oh, and it's going to be Thomas for Marlon. He rescued them in normal time. It was uh, Arsenal's fifth penalty. Vermarlen stepped up. So Vermarlen had to score to keep Arsenal in the tie. And, you know, I just remember all the lads ready, you know, hoping the keeper would make a great save or something. And... He'd almost gone from the high of Richie Jones could win it here and Bradford are through to he's missed and that's it. Chance gone again. Vermarlen will... We'll score this and, we, and Arsenal will go on and win it. And he stepped up. And he hit the post and that was it. It was all over. You know, we just saw the ball bounce out and, you know, then we just 
realised we'd done it and you know we just ran to the keeper as you do. I was sat in the main stand and, and everyone was uh, was very much kind of shoehorned together and the place just erupted and, and I've not heard kind of noises like that in Valley Parade for, for a long time. The win over Arsenal was massive, but then Bradford drew Aston Villa in the semi-finals. Yeah, up until then, it was his obviously biggest moment of his lives. Um, so we're thinking, like, we've got half a chance here. In towards the back post, Ben Tekis, Yes, James Hansen actually scored the crucial goal at Villa Park to take Bradford to Wembley. Is that a goal that will take City to Wembley? To beat Villa after the Arsenal win was just unbelievable achievement for a League 2 club to get to a, a major cup final. So obviously it was Chelsea v Swansea in the other semi-final and at the time Swansea was playing probably the best football you know, I'd seen from an outside top 14. And there's the final whistle! Swansea City are winners of the Capital One Cup final by five goals to nil. It was just a shame that we couldn't Play glove on him that day. It was that good. Bradford City have been beaten, well beaten here today, but their achievement must never be forgotten and never underrated. Bradford were well beaten, but the story was about getting to to a major final for a League Two club, and then Bradford managed to get themselves into the playoffs, and they were back at Wembley at the end of the season in the playoffs. James Hansen scored again in the playoff final against Northampton. And it capped off a fairy tale season because not only did Bradford get to the League Cup final, they also got promotion at Wembley into League One. As a fourth tier side to go to um, Wembley and play a Premier League side is uh, unheard of. And you know, with it being a full house as well, it was absolutely brilliant occasion for me and my family. And for me to be living in Bradford as well, it's probably made it even better for me. You know, I'd be going to the shop and you'd, you'd be getting five or six fans talking to you about the games and yeah it was it was a brilliant year to be involved in well for James he was the only player in the in the team from from the area the fact that he worked in the local supermarket the fans used to sing he used to work at the court that was the the, the chant that used to echo around the ground all the time he created that bond again between the city and the football club and it was, it was just a fairy tale season, a fairy tale story. For a League Two side to achieve what Bradford did that season, I don't think it will ever, ever happen again. A football fairy tale was written and produced by Robert Mulhern. For more information on this story, log on to skynews.com forward slash storycast21. Next time. I just saw, you know, the ceiling crashing down, just the destruction. We're in Belgium, as Brussels experiences its deadliest attack since World War II. The second terrorist was going towards the main exit. I passed him and he detonated the bomb.
we begin with a desperate search through the mountains of rubble in Surfside, Florida. Newly obtained dispatches from first responders offer a new look at what happened in the aftermath of the collapse. 76, I see many people on the balcony. There's, the building is gone. There's no elevators. There's, this is nothing. I mean, it, it almost resembles a trade center. Copy, no elevators. 131, they Some people are evacuating. It sounds like they heard a bomb. Dozens of families gathered for a candlelight vigil last night as the search for any possible survivors now enters its sixth day. NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton joins us now from Surfside, Florida. So, Antonia, at this point, it is still a search and rescue mission. Thank you. How hopeful are county officials and rescue teams that they can still find any survivors? Good morning, Joe. You know, there is some tension here in Surfside right now between the words coming from officials and leaders who are maintaining hope that survivors might be found, who want people to keep praying and staying focused on the recovery and rescue efforts, and then with the families, many of whom are kind of coming to terms with the reality that we are on day six, that 11 people have been confirmed dead, but 150 people are still unaccounted for. And so for many of them, that means that they are you know, facing a reality that their loved ones may not have survived that many days under the rubble. In fact, I actually met a woman who lives about a block away from the site of the collapse, and she had a friend who lived in that South Tower that came down, and she told me she has basically just given up hope that her friend is still alive and has had to kind of move forward right now. And, you know, tensions have kind of spilled over. And at times, family members and loved ones have even yelled at officials in private meetings, demanding accountability, trying to understand what the pace is of this recovery. And it has been excruciating for everyone involved. I want you to take a listen to what the mayor of Miami-Dade said last night. We have uh, people waiting and waiting and waiting for news. That is excruciating. Uh, we have them coping with the news that they might not have their loved ones come out alive and still hope against hope that they will. They're learning that some of their loved ones will come out as, as body parts. I mean, this is, this is the kind of, of information that is just excruciating uh, for everyone. So officials are looking at a situation right now where they are trying to respond to the demands and the emotional needs of these families, but they are also supporting rescuers and first responders who are on an extremely dangerous rubble site that requires them to move slowly and meticulously through this process. And those two things do not go well hand in hand. There is pressure to have answers and closure, but there's also a need to be incredibly safe, Joe. Antonia, we now know that a third lawsuit has been filed by victims' families. What is this suit alleging? That's right. There is this new third lawsuit, and this is a class action lawsuit that is somewhat similar to the other lawsuits that have been filed in that it points directly at the condo association of the South Tower as responsible, as potentially knowledgeable about the extensive damage that may have been throughout the building in areas like the parking garage, the basement, the pool deck. And it also says that they are going to call for further investigation into other entities or people who could have had knowledge about this at various points over the last few years. 
lawyers and try to work to hold them accountable. Uh, the lawsuit really is focused around this plaintiff, Raisa Rodriguez, who describes a horrific scene that night of the collapse in which she sort of awoke to the feeling of the building swaying like a piece of paper. She called friends and family in utter horror, saw the collapse out the window, and then tried to escape and sort of wanders through the building, ultimately finding a staircase that is separated from the walls of the building. And so you're just brought into the scene of the horror that night. And, and what she describes is utterly traumatic, but ultimately she is one of the lucky people who was rescued and has survived this collapse. And this is a class action suit, though, that is calling to hold this condo association accountable for the losses and the experience of those like Miss Rodriguez, but also, of course, all of the lives that we're ultimately going to find out have been lost. Joe. All right. Antonia Hilton reporting from Florida. Antonia, thanks so much. With the Delta variant well on its way to becoming dominant here in the U.S., doctors are learning how long some vaccines may provide protection against the virus. NBC News Now correspondent Priscilla Thompson joins us now in the studio with more on the encouraging news. So Priscilla, scientists looked at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. What all did they find about it? Yeah, well, scientists are saying that Pfizer and Moderna offer an immune response uh, that is uh, set off a persistent immune reaction in the body, uh, excuse me, and that could protect from COVID-19 for years, plural. Uh, take wow. a listen to what si one scientist had to say about it. When you get two doses of the RNA vaccine, and that's in our study, we studied the Pfizer vaccine, this actually means that you have a, a big chance of having a, an immune response that could last for years. Now, that study did not include the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but researchers say that mm. it may not have as long-lasting impacts as what we're seeing in Pfizer and Moderna. So researchers have also, though we know, been looking into mixing some of the vaccines, and we're now getting an idea of what that might look like. What does that mean? Yeah. So European countries, as a reminder, uh, at one point were giving AstraZeneca as the first dose, but then offering alternatives for that second shot. And that was after AstraZeneca was linked to rare blood clots. And so this study essentially replicated that. So participants received a first dose of AstraZeneca and Pfizer as the second dose. And what they found is that combination produced better immune responses than giving a second dose of AstraZeneca. Now, Researchers called the news encouraging, but also added that same shot regimens should remain the mm. default unless there's a good reason to mm. mix and match. And Priscilla, while we have you, we know summer camps are open once again, some for the first time in more than a year. But in Illinois, health officials are reporting one camp more than 80 cases. Most of them are teenagers. What more can you tell us about this outbreak? Yeah, so this was a summer camp that occurred in mid-June. And what we know is that the camp was not checking vaccination status, nor did they require masks indoors. And this comes, of course, mm -hmm. as the Delta variant is becoming the dominant strain in the U.S. Take a listen to what the governor had to say about that. Already the Delta variant that sent Israel back into mitigation is a growing presence in Illinois. We expect it to dominate our cases statewide by the fall. The lessons here at home and across the world are a harbinger of what could happen here, particularly in low vaccinated areas. The health department says they are still working to determine if any of these cases were caused by a specific strain. All right. Priscilla Thompson, thank you. And it's always great to have you here on set with us. Good to be here. Yeah. Thank you for all our COVID headlines. We'll see you soon.
All right, the historic heat wave that scorched the West is winding down. Now the East Coast is feeling the heat, and on top of that is also facing a tropical storm system. NBC meteorologist Dylan Dreyer joins us from Bryant Park here in New York City with more. Hi, Dylan. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, the heat wave that started yesterday is expected to bring us the hottest temperatures we've seen so far this year. In the Northeast, we have heat advisories and heat warnings in effect, and they stretch down the coast. And so often we say it's not just the heat, it's the humidity. And the humidity is going to make cities like Boston, New York, Philadelphia feel like it's well above 100 degrees. And the worst is yet to come. This morning, across the Northeast, a scorching summer heat wave, dangerous temperatures and extreme humidity sizzling cities up and down the coast. I'm surprised that it's this hot this early. Northeast temperatures soaring past seasonal averages with heat advisories stretching from New Jersey to Maine. I try to drink a lot of water. Philadelphia and Boston declaring heat emergencies, preparing for possible record-breaking temperatures. The heavy, humid air in many places feeling hotter than 100 degrees. It's hot. (laughs) The humidity. It's horrible. People and pets cooling off however they can. New York opening city pools despite a lifeguard shortage coming out of the pandemic. Beaches along the coast already packed ahead of the 4th of July holiday. They had summer soccer camp this morning and I figured a good way to cool off was to come to the beach. Off South Carolina's shores, Tropical Storm Danny strengthened before drenching the coast. It's already the fourth named storm of the year months earlier than normal. Now, I know it's summer and it's supposed to be hot, but uh, one friendly reminder here is that the heat really needs to be taken seriously because heat is actually the number one cause of weather-related deaths in this country. I'm always carrying around this big jug of water, and this is exactly what you're going to need today. You stay hydrated if you have to spend a lot of time outdoors, and better yet, stay indoors as much as you can today. Joe and Savannah. Dylan, I have that same water bottle, and I love the little encouragements. That is a great tip. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, let's see what's going on with the weather moving forward and get a check on your morning news now weather all around the country. Yeah. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Good morning. I think I was able to look closely at Dylan's bottle. I think halfway it says, don't give up. Yeah, it does. And it goes like, way to go. You're almost there. It's kind of fun. Yes, head to the bathroom when you get to the top. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. So, uh, yeah. all right. So yesterday was, as we had advertised, was just an unprecedented, unparalleled day of heat in the Northwest. And now that we're starting to add up all the totals, because yesterday was the peak of it. Look where Portland falls. So this is the list of all the major cities in the country and the hottest all-time temperatures that they've had. Phoenix, of course, on top of the list, as you'd expect. Uh, Vegas is second at 117. But Portland had 116 degrees yesterday. They're now third on the list. That's insane. And it's not like Seattle's not far back either. Seattle had an all-time record high of 108 yesterday. Seattle used to be like in the 30s or 40s. They've jumped so much higher on this this list now. They are higher than Baltimore, D.C., and New York. So, like, Seattle's now, like, considered like a hot city. 
So today, 12 million people impacted. We've taken Portland out of the excessive heat warning. Good for them. A little bit cooler today in the northwest on the coast, but not inland. And also 44 million people in the northeast. So today, about 103 in Burns, uh, Oregon, 110 in Spokane. But notice Seattle, you're back at into the 90s. That's a typical hot day, at least for you. Reading 108. And as we head to the northeast, this is where it's going to be just like yesterday, mid-90s on the coastal areas. It'll feel like about 100 to 110, a little bit cooler in the Great Lakes. Tomorrow's the last day of the heat wave in the Northeast. It'll still feel like 100 with the factor in the humidity. But as we go through Wednesday night, the relief will come in the form of some dangerous thunderstorms. We're going to be under a slight risk of severe thunderstorms, gusty winds, maybe even an isolated tornado or two. So everything comes, you know, slowly we're going to round back into what we consider normal, mm. if there is a normal anymore. Um, but, yeah, it's going to take a day or two to get there. Yeah. And then it's July and August, so probably much more around the corner. Yeah. Lots that we'll be hearing from you. Thank you so much, Bill. U.S. forces in Syria came under rocket fire on Monday, just one day after American fighter jets carried out airstrikes on Iran-backed militia groups in Iraq and Syria. A U.S. military spokesman said there were no injuries and later tweeted that U.S. troops responded by conducting counter-battery artillery fire. The Iraqi government is condemning the U.S. air raid, calling it a violation of the country's sovereignty, adding it would study legal options to stop it from happening again. NBC News correspondent Ali Arouzi joins us now from Tehran. So, Ali, a lot of countries involved here, Iraq, Syria, but you're there in Iran. What has been the reaction there in Iran to these U.S. strikes? Good morning, Joe. Well, we've only heard from the foreign ministry spokesperson so far who condemned the airstrike, saying the United States is taking the wrong path in the region and that Washington is continuing the failed legacy of the previous administration. He said uh, instead of creating tensions and problems in the region, the U.S. should leave the region and let people establish their own security without Washington interfering, which only causes disruptions. Other than that, officials here have been uncharacteristically silent about the airstrikes. Of course, the militias in Iraq and Syria vowed revenge. They made good on that threat, obviously. So, Ali, are there any signs that Iran-backed militia groups could step up attacks on U.S. interests in the region in the wake of these airstrikes? Well, there's been an alarming increase recently in the number of attacks by Iranian-backed militias on U.S. assets, attacks that have become more sophisticated, using more advanced hardware. And the reality is, Joe, that they will probably continue with varying degrees of severity depending on the, on the political climate, because ultimately their goal is to expel all U.S. troops from the region. Look, it was only last week that the Hashd al-Shabi militia had a military-style parade in Iraq showing off their hardware, including tanks and drones, which are probably supplied by Iran. Uh, They look more powerful than the Iraqi army. And you don't flex that kind of military power if you don't want to send the message to the U.S. uh, that they're not welcome. Uh, By and large, the attacks have been contained, but the smallest miscalculation could have massive implications for both Iraq, Iran and the United States. And Ali, any idea at this point, could this latest escalation in tensions have any impact at all on nuclear talks with Iran? 
Uh, ultimately, I don't think this will have a major impact on talks with, uh, with on Iran's nuclear program. If Iran wanted to make a bigger deal out of this, uh, there would have been a much stronger threatening statement by a senior Revolutionary Guard commander vowing revenge. Uh, there wasn't one, which is an indication that they don't want talks to fall apart. Iran has been pushing the envelope with the Biden administration to figure out their boundaries, see how far they can go. And they were probably expecting a retaliatory attack, considering how many attacks there have been by Iranian-backed militias over the last couple of months. Clearly, the White House doesn't want to derail talks either. Jen Psaki said that even though Iran's behavior is extremely problematic, they're seeing an opportunity to move forward with negotiations. All right. Ali Arouzi reporting from Tehran. Ali, thanks so much. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.